So, uh, prison officer stories always go down really well. They're hard hitting. It's fascinating to hear it from the other side. John Sutton, Samworth, etc. And today we've got Stu, who did a life sentence. In, I mean, he, <laughs> he, worked, he worked for 24 years in, as a prison officer. Yes. So, and he's working on his book as well, which we hope to have published um, when that is completed. We'll keep you posted about that. A uh, huge thank you for coming on then, Shane. Yes, cheers, You're welcome. You know, you've got this massive career inside and so many stories, so many different prisons. But we'd like to start out with a, a hard-hitting one just to give the viewers a taste of, before we go back to how you got into okay. it. Okay. And there was something happened at Wandsworth, didn't it? Yes. Um, back to March, just before COVID came in, uh, Sean, I can't remember what year it would have been now, 2000... Um, 20 possibly 21 um i was working in the offender management unit at wandsworth so my role there was basically getting prisoners sentence plans ready for their moving on progression within the service uh it was a sunday morning everything was pretty calm in the jail and then around about 11 15 we heard an alarm bell go having a shout on the radio assistance required k-wing so obviously you run to any response, certainly when it's all available staff, sort of, all, you know, available assistance. I've ran to the wing. As I've gone through the main door to get onto the wing, there was a prisoner on the floor fighting with three members of staff, so he was being restrained. A little bit further along the landing, there was another prisoner who was on the floor. He was being restrained. And then this was on the twos landing. So above onto the threes landing, there was a mass of prisoners goading everybody. So I've decided to take the... Uh, Took the lead. I've gone up the stairwell, said to these guys, right guys, behind your doors, you need to start banging up. Started pushing the prisoners back down the landing and then one of them decided he wasn't going to go anywhere. So we've stopped. We're, we're having sort of, I would say, discussions where I'm telling him, you need to go behind your door because we've got to get this situation sorted out. The guy was refusing to move. So I've decided, well, if you're not going to move, I'm going to have to move you. I went to restrain him. Part of the process of doing that is... As I'm the lead officer, I'll grab the prisoner's head. My colleagues on either side of me would then take hold of his arms and he would be restrained. So I've gone for the guy's head. And unfortunately, my colleagues decided to stand there and watch. So as I've taken the guy down to the floor, he's obviously got his hands around my neck and we've gone down and basically tumbled on the floor. Next minute, I've got his fingers in my face. He's punching me. He's trying to gouge my eyes out. And we've had a literally a, a, like a fist fight on the floor. I didn't know this until later on. A member of staff had obviously observed this from the other side of the landing. And what he's had to do is jump over the railings, across the netting, over the other side of the railings, and then assist me in restraining this prisoner. Eventually, more staff have turned up and have obviously taken control. There was a lot of blood around. Didn't realise at the time it was all my blood. So when my supervisors turned up, she's basically turned around at me and said, right, you need to get yourself into the healthcare. And off I, off I bimbled, uh, got into the office and I was just absolutely covered in blood. Um, yeah. So when you were rolling around on the floor, Dan, these guards were just watching? Literally just stood there watching. Obviously at the time I didn't know this was all happening, but f- certainly talked to people afterwards and people watching the CCTV as well. Yeah, they just clearly stood there and didn't want to get involved. And did they give an explanation as to why they didn't get involved? Unfortunately not. 
And what inj- injuries did you see? Um, nothing um, too bad, actually. I think with the blood, it was just basically because I got, uh, obviously, caught in the nose. My nose had exploded everywhere. I had a few scratches on my face. Um, sore neck, but basically that was all. It wasn't too bad. How did you prevent him from getting in your eyes? It was just literally fist fighting. Yeah, just keeping <laughs> we away literally from just, Yeah, we were just yeah. crawling at each other. And how common is an attack like that? <sighs> it's getting more and more often now. Um, 17 years in the job prior to leaving, then coming back in, I was never assaulted once. In the five years I was back in the job, I was assaulted on three occasions. And I haven't changed. I'm still the same person as I was when I joined the job in 96. I would want to work there myself, no. (laughs) So you come from a military background? I do, uh, Sean, yes. Um, I was born in Leeds. My parents, well, my, my, my father was, was in the Air Force. Um, Witness versus Leeds, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm more of a, a football fan myself. Um, obviously, I was born in Leeds. My father, at the time, I think he was posted out in uh, Singapore or somewhere like that. Um, so I spent my first two years growing up in Leeds. So I've got an older brother. Um, after my dad had come back from his overseas tour, we then got posted as a family and we went round quite a few places in the UK. I can't really remember a lot of where we, we lived. I remember we lived in Finningley. We lived in a place called Topcliffe, which was like North Yorkshire. As I got a little bit older, we ended up in Bryce Norton in Oxfordshire. And then in 1978, we moved over to Holland and my dad was um, posted to Avcent in a place called Brussels, uh, Brunson, sorry, Brussels. Brussels, a place called Brunson. And we lived there in, uh, I think it was 75 to about 79. Um, and then we came back to the UK. My mum and dad at that time had then decided to save some money up. And then when we came, came back to England, they bought their first house in Leeds. So then we settled, um, we settled in Leeds. And basically my dad then um, got told he was going to get a post to Hong Kong. Mm which obviously I didn't know at the time, but if I'd have known that, I'd have been like, great. I'd love to go somewhere like that, you know. But he decided because they just bought a house, they'd just come back from an overseas tour. He didn't want to go overseas again. Got himself a job in the recruitment office in Huddersfield. He was there for about 18 months and then he made the decision to leave. So he'd done 25 years in the Air Force, left the service. Um, He got a job working for somebody he used to work with in in the Air Force. In um It was like a mobile phone company but this is before mobile phones were as we know now you know you were walking around with big bricks in your hand and you know <laughs> probably wouldn't last five minutes once they were on a charge um and yeah he um he worked with, in this job for a couple of years got made redundant unfortunately because again he hadn't taken off i suppose as he wanted um he then got a job as a bailiff did that for a few years he then moved on to become a court usher and then he became a prison officer which i suppose he then where the spark in my mind, sort of, hmm, that might be uh, something to look at as I as I uh, get a little bit older. But knowing, I, I do transgress, sorry, I do talk a lot. But in, in 1988, I joined the army. Um, I joined a medical course. So I was trained in Kiowa Barracks in order shop, which is not too far. Yeah. Um, did my, my training there, which was eight-week basic training. And then you did an extra, I think it was seven weeks of trade training. So then I became a band-free um CMT, which is called a combat medical technician, which sounds really, really good. All you did, you were a first aider. You put plasters on people and gave them pills. That's all it really was. Um, I got my first posting to 22 Field Hospital, which was again in order shop. Um, so 
I had dreams of going to um, Germany or even Northern Ireland because that was still going on at the time. But in the basic training stage of it all, I wasn't particularly fit before I joined the army. But when I was in the army and I did the training and I, I was saying to myself, I was super fit. Um, I could run, you know, a mile and a half, um, combat, fit, um, basic fitness test in boots in, you know, sort of eight and a half minutes. I mean, that was some going as well. So I, I wanted to join the uh, parachute field ambulance. So I thought, yeah, I'll become a para, you know, a bit of prestige. Unfortunately, there was somebody in my training unit I did not get on with at all. And when they sat us down to ask us all for our choices of postings, this guy jumped up and went 23 PFA. And I just thought, no, I'm not going there. Not oh. with him. So I decided, you know what? I'm not bothered where I go. And as I said, I ended up in 223 Hospital in, in Aldershot. Um, I was there. Around about 18 months, I believe it was. And then the ambulance strike kicked in in the UK. I think it was about 1989 at this stage. Um, so then we all had to go up to Edinburgh. We got two weeks intensive training in Edinburgh. Um, and then we were posted to various parts in the UK. Initially, I started off in London. So I was in Wellington Barracks, posted in the barracks there. And then I got moved up to Worcester. And we basically had um, a police escort with us. Obviously, I say police escort. They drove us around because obviously the areas we didn't know. So I had an RAF driver as my ambulance driver. I was in the back being the medic and uh, we'd have the police taking us around. And um, yeah, absolutely fantastic. This is what you join the army for, <laughs> to do things like this, you know. Um, had a couple of um, horrible instances where... I got called to, an, uh, to a, an Indian restaurant because I got told a guy had had um, a fall. When I turned up, he was sat on somebody's lap and basically the guy said he hasn't been breathing for five minutes. Training obviously kicked in. Thankfully, I didn't panic. Got him down on the floor, tried to do CPR on him. Nothing really worked. Got him in the ambulance eventually. Got him moved off to the uh, hospital, and as the doctor came onto the ambulance, when we got to the hospital, he was pronounced dead. Oh my goodness! Did you find out what happened to him? He was—he had a heart attack. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It turned out he'd actually had a heart attack, oh. uh, and I think he was only about forty. Oh. And then an embarrassing moment was um, I got called to another house for a heart attack victim, and as I've run into the house, you know, here I am, everything's okay. There was a guy doing CPR on this on this patient. And I've got, get out of the way, get out of the way. You know, didn't realise at the time the guy who was doing the CPR was actually a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, that guy had died as well. Did that affect you mentally, encountering these dead people? The, the first one certainly did. Because on the way to the hospital, I remember I was, I was still trying to do CPR on the guy. And I just remember his eyes was just looking at me. No. You know, it was, it was <sighs> but you, you carried on and... Yeah, that that's always it, and I can I can see it now. I can it's see him right there, movie? and his eyes are just yeah, just staring at me. Oh, I still see it now. I still see it now. It's yeah, not nice. Did I mean, the stories? Was, did his dad tell you stories about his prison work? Did that intrigue you? Did did he? He did. Yeah, my dad. Um, he started off in young offenders. But when I say young offender, it was more juvenile. So I think it was 15 mm. to 18 year olds. Um, he never wore a uniform. He'd go into work in a suit. And again, we're talking back in the 80s now. I think it was quite brutal in those days. 
you know. Um, shot, sharp, shock. Yes, all right. that's right. Um, I mean, me, at the time, me and my dad didn't have a fantastic relationship because mm. when I left school, I wasn't really interested in work, if I'm honest with you. And I sort of bummed around a little bit. I got a few little jobs here and there. Mm. Me and my dad, because of his background, and I, I become a goth, believe it or not. So I, I sort of got <laughs> into all this sort of yeah. crazy music and whatnot. <laughs> and, you know, I'd, I'd dye my hair a different colour every week. You know, he hated it. He hated it. So we had a bit of a, a strained relationship. Mm. Um, I moved out of home. I think I was probably 17. I ended up moving into a flat on my own for a while. I said I wasn't working. I was on benefits. Eventually moved to Manchester. I had a lot of friends in Manchester. Lived there for a couple of years. Then get into the rave scene. I didn't. If I'm honest with you, I mean, I used to go, I mean, it's certainly in, in, in Leeds, we used to go to a place called the um, Phonographic, which is in the Marion Centre in Leeds. It was a sort of downstairs yeah. nightclub. Um, the warehouse was a, a big club in Leeds. Mm. I'd go out with £2 in my pocket, pay to tit in the door, and that was it. I just, 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 it used to be, I don't know, meeting your friends, have a dance. You know, I was never interested in drugs, never took drugs. Very rarely drank, you know, it was just, it was just being part of something, you know. Yeah. And I think the more I did it, the more outrageous I wanted to be <laughs> as well, you know. <laughs> I'd have piercings in my ears, my nose, you know. Become a character. Yeah, basically, that's right. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a few years and then eventually I decided, you know, I'm, 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 I think it was 20 years of age. I thought I've got to grow up now. And that's when I made the decision, right, I'll, I'll apply for the army. Um, Went for my entrance exam, got through it, got then told, okay, we'll call you back in about a week's time for an interview and we'll discuss what sort of trades were available to you. I remember me and my dad had a massive, massive fallout over it, what I can't remember. And I just picked up a bag one day, I think it was a Saturday, packed a load of stuff into the bag, jumped on the bus into Leeds City Centre and thought, where am I going to go? I thought, right, I'll go to South Shields. He's got family in South Shields. Where else can I go? Ended up in Newcastle train station, jumped on a tram, went to South Shield, knocked on my aunt's door, and it was a bit of like, oh. And I went, I'm sorry, but I've got nowhere to go. Can I stay with you a few, a few days? A few days turned into a few months. I think they got sick of me, to be honest with you, because again, I wasn't working. Um, and then I did, made the decision, you know what? I started this process with the army. Let's finish it off. Walked down to the local recruitment office in South Shields, walked through the door, and that's where it all started. And you end up overseas before you go to the prison system. Yes. Um, I was in the Gulf War in 91. So um, I got married to my first wife in the November of 1990. And I got told basically about a week after getting married that I was going out to the Gulf. And on the 1st of January 1991, I was going up to Chester to do two weeks intensive nuclear, biological and chemical warfare training, which is NBC training. Because at the time, obviously, the main threat with um, the Gulf was chemical warfare. So did my two weeks uh, training in Chester, which was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, I got put on the advance party for the unit I was with, and I got, I got attached to um, a TA unit. I can't remember what they were called now. I think it was, might be 2-4 field ambulance or something. Um, and then we ended up going over to Riyadh, which was obviously the capital of Saudi Arabia. And we set up the hospital in um, a half-built um, airport terminal. And we were we were a field hospital, basically. So the guys, 
were coming from the front would end up in the field hospitals or the, the, the field ambulances, as we'd call them. And then they'd move them back to us. And then we would obviously take care of them and get them shipped back to the UK. What kind of shape were they in? To be honest with you, Sean, we very rarely got anybody. There was, yeah, it was, it, I mean, the war was over that quick. Yeah. It was very, very rare casualties. I mean, I think the, any casualties we did get were just basically silly little road traffic accidents and things like this, you know, didn't really see many, many casualties. Um, I was there till the March, about middle of March. And then because the war was over, they wanted to get the TA back. So we ended up getting brought back to the UK pretty quickly. So we were back in the UK by, I think, middle of March, end of March. And then you got based over in Germany for three years. Yes, that's right. I then got, tran- uh, I got a posting. I got told I was, um, I got told initially I was going to Cyprus. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, two years in Cyprus, what better posting <laughs> can you get? <laughs> I got called to the um, the chief clerk's office this particular morning to get my post in order. And he went, yep, there you go, mate. You're going to Germany. And I was like, I thought I was going to Cyprus. He went, no, you're going on promotion. So you're going to Germany as a Lance Corporal. So you got your first promotion, Germany. I ended up in a place called Hildesheim, which was a beautiful town in Germany. And I was attached to the one Royal Army, uh, one Royal Tank Regiment. And we also had one Army Air Corps there as well. So... I was in Hildesheim for, I believe it was about 18 months. And then with the Berlin Wall coming down, the troops have then been taken back to the UK. Hildesheim was earmarked to close. So after 18 months, the, cl- the camp closed down. I was still um, going to stay in Germany. So I got moved to a place called Nienburg, which was a little bit further north than Hanover. And they couldn't give me a quarter in the area I was going to be working in. So I had to live in a place called Cellar, which was, again, a fantastic place. I lived there for about six months, traveling backwards and forwards to Nienburg. And then I got a, a flat in, um, in the married quarters in, in Nienburg and ended up doing about another 18 months. Decided then, um, three years in Germany was long enough, saved some money up, wanted to do this, like the same as my mum and dad, come back to the UK, buy a house, which is what we did. We came back to the UK, got posted to Colchester. I was with, um, 24 Mobile Brigade at the time and, I think we came back in the end of 94, at the middle of 95, we got posted out to Bosnia. And we were out there for, I think, three months in total. But the, the role for us is to go in as UN troops. We were there as NATO troops. And the idea was if the peace process, which was going through at the time, had fallen through, they thought there was a big threat to a lot of the UN troops out there. And the idea was we would go in, sort of build a corridor to withdraw all the troops out. Uh, this is why we weren't going as UN. We were going as NATO troops. Um, thankfully, it all worked out. The peace process came into place. And yeah, about three months later, back to the UK. Um, I decided at this time then I had about 15, 16 months left in the army. I'd signed up for nine years initially. Um, do I stay or do I do I leave? And I had to make a decision sort of on my eight year point, if I was going to stay in or I was going to leave. Uh, and that's when I decided, you know what, let's do something different. And I applied for the prison service. What swerved that decision in the end? To, to leave the army. To leave the army. The prison service. I think because I bought my house, I bought a house and same with my dad. I didn't want to end up having to be posted again overseas. I'd just gone for my sergeant's promotion. I got obviously my, my full corporal in Germany. I'd sat my sergeant's exams. 
chances are I would have probably gone back out to Germany as a sergeant and having just bought a house, I didn't really want to do that. And saying it was your dad's decision, had he not told you any horror stories of his time? Not really any major horror stories. He, he, I remember him taking me round Leeds Jail because at this time he'd, he'd transferred himself to Armley and he took me into Armley Jail and he said, I'm now going to show you what it's really like. So rather than me tell you stories to encourage you to join, I'm going to show you what it's really like. And I remember walking through the gates of Armley Jail expecting to see people with horns on their heads. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. not realising, obviously, a prisoner is no different than you and me. But I had this vision in my mind and it was daunting. It was, wow. <laughs> it was, yeah. I remember funny, actually, because um, we'd gone on to one of the wings and my dad was talking to one of his friends and I was stood there and obviously in my civilian clothing. And I saw this officer kept looking at me, kept glancing at me. And then he turned around and went, what's your problem? And my dad had to turn, I said, it's all right, it's my son. <laughs> and this officer actually thought I was a, uh, I was a prisoner. And there was another wing we went on to, we went on to uh, E-Wing where my dad worked. And um, we were stood on there and they called bang up. And an officer tried to bang me up behind the door. And I'm like, I'm, I'm a visitor, I'm a visitor. <laughs> and my dad had to come along and say, he's okay, he's with me, you know. But uh, yeah, it was, it was eye-opening, put it that way. But I thought, no, I, I think I could do this. And I had a few people say to me, you know, you, you haven't got the mentality to be a prison officer. I thought, well, what mentality do you need? you just got to be yourself, you know? Anyway, I thought, no, I'm going to go for it. Um, I applied to a few jails at the time. I mean, the process back in the sort of 90s was you applied to the service, you then you applied to the jail you wanted to go to as, a, as, as opposed to sort of national recruiting, which is what happened with my dad. You know, he would um, apply do his training and then a couple of weeks before the end of training, get given a brown envelope and that would tell him where he was going to be going to. And they used to say, if you were a single guy, you'd end up in London. No matter where you lived, you would end up in London because the London jails were always screaming out for staff. The time I joined, you applied to the jails you wanted to work in. I was quite lucky living in Colchester. There's quite a few jails around. We had Chelmsford. We had a place called Bullwood Hall, which was a uh, female prison, which is now closed. We had High Point. And then it wasn't such a big journey either to travel into London as well. I, excuse me, I initially applied to Reading, believe it or not, where Reading came from, I don't know. But I applied to Reading. I was a bit cocky, I suppose. You know, I went into, I took my exam, passed it, no problem, went for my interview, failed it miserably. Didn't get anywhere in the interview process and I thought, well, I'll, I'll keep trying. So I did the same again, went to Chelmsford, got for the exam, no problem. I had my interview, failed my interview. And I'm like, you know, Dad, what's going on here? Like, you know, and he, he just, look, just keep persevering, persevere. I applied to go to Bullwood Hall, took my exam, sat down, had my interview, failed my interview. So that was three interviews on the bounds I'd actually failed. And I started thinking, maybe I'm not going to get into this job. Anyway, around about... November of 90, I think it would be 95. Bearing in mind, I was still in the army, but I was, you know, I had to make a decision. Am I going to stay or get out? I applied to uh, Whitemore. And that was a dispersal prison in Cambridgeshire. And they had a big recruitment campaign where they 
booked a big hall. You went in there, you took your exam. If you passed your exam, rather than calling you back at a later date for an interview, you went straight in for your interview. If you got for your interview, they told you literally within half an hour, you went for your medical. Off you went home, a letter would arrive at your doorstep a week later saying, yep, well done, you're on our waiting list. Uh, I got accepted. So this was, I believe it was in between Christmas and New Year in 95. So obviously, as soon as the New Year came along, I went into the army, went to my chief clerk or whoever I had to speak to and said, right, I'm leaving. I've decided I'm going to go. I was told I would probably start my training in the March, April time. So I had to pay £250 because I, I actually, what they call PVR, I... Um, voluntarily released myself from the army. So I had to pay 250 quid because my contract was for nine years and I'd only served the eight. Not an issue. I got a job as a security guard, just doing sort of horrible night shifts, you know, working around factories and stuff, expecting it to be a job for a couple of months until my letter arrived from my training date. Um, unfortunately, a letter did arrive on my doorstep one day telling me, unfortunately, we just now have a recruitment freeze. And they stopped recruiting. And I believe what had happened was not long before that had happened, there was a big category A escape from Parker's prison. And because they decided to downgrade Parker's from dispersal to Cat B, they didn't know, they didn't need the extra staff. I think a lot of those staff were plugged into the White Moors and the Long Lartons, I suppose. So I was like, what am I going to do now? And um, continued doing the security work, absolutely hated it, but I had a mortgage to pay persevered and then it was a friend one day said to me he says oh um the prison service recruiting again i went they're not he went, they are they're not and he showed me this article and it was for a prison auxiliary so as a pro for a prison officer you were like a support grade and this was in a prison called grendon which was in buckinghamshire filled in the application sent it off went for an interview um explained obviously i'd been accepted to become an officer at whitemore it had all fallen through I still had that desire to become an officer, but in the meantime, I was willing to take the job as a, a prison auxiliary. Uh, and I got offered a role. Luckily for me, with Grendon, they had accommodation. So I didn't have to rent a flat or anything. It was like, um, um, sort of like a, uh, a unit on, in the, in the sort of the old quarters area where I could move sort of for a couple of hundred quid a month, I suppose, you know, had rent. So I, I'd work up there for two weeks, come home on my weekends off go back for two weeks because that's what you basically did. Your, your working week was, you know, weekend on, weekend off. Um, so when I go back on a Monday, I'd maybe work Tuesday, Wednesday, have the Thursday off, work Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday off, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, weekend off, go home. I did that for about eight months. What was your first day like? As an auxiliary, it's, it's totally different. You, you do have prisoner contact, but not a lot of prisoner contact. Mm-hmm. A lot of the roles we were doing was, it would be vehicle escorts, for instance. So all you'll do, you'll be in the gate, a vehicle will turn up for the stores, and you would have walked that vehicle down to the stores, supervise the unloading, making sure prisoners don't obviously jump on the back of the van before it leaves, and then you would walk it back, get it in the gate, do another security check to make sure there wasn't anybody secreted on the vehicle, and then you'd let it go. Um, another role, <clears throat> excuse me, they gave us was working in the gates. But again, all you did, you were just opening and shutting gates all day long. But it was, it was, it was a bit of an insight. And then they decided they would start training us in the communications room. And 
I think this is where the sort of downslide in prison service started, really, because once you got to the sort of age of 50, 55, you'd be put into little nice areas, little cushy little numbers, because you'd done your time. And comms was one of the areas. But they decided then that it would be cheaper to put an OSG in the communications room and have the officers obviously on the wings. So we took a lot of flack as, as officers, as auxiliaries, because obviously we were taking an officer's job, but we got trained working in the comms room. So we would be up there on the radios. Um, if an alarm bell went, which very, very rarely happened at Grendon, you know, you'd press the red button and tell staff where the incident was. Um, and that's, that's basically the roles we did. You know, we didn't do much more than that. Occasionally you would be put on the switchboard, for instance. So you'd just be answering calls and diverting calls to different various departments. Um, I remember doing a couple of night shifts. So then as a, a night auxiliary, you'd work on a wing, obviously. Prisoners would be behind the door, so you wouldn't have any real contact with them. And you'd just do your checks during the night and you'd do a you know a 12-hour shift, whatever it was, for seven nights and then go home and have a week off, you know. Three prisoners escaped from HMP Parkhurst around this time, didn't they? That's correct. Do you know how they did it? <laughs> I have seen documentaries. Um <laughs> They were the highest profile prisoners. They were, they? that's right, Sean. I mean, Category A prisoners, yeah. you know, you've, if you're a Category A, you've got something behind you. You know, mm. if you, you are either a very, very dangerous person or you're a very wealthy person who have got a lot of contacts, who can be dangerous as far as I'm concerned, you know. Mm. But yeah, three Categories got out and uh, I think they were, they were on the island for about two days before they got found. But yeah, I suppose as a... Wasn't the one where they brought the helicopter in, was it? No, I believe that was, was that Gartry? Oh, that Gartry? I believe that Someone was Gartry. Someone sold us that one. Yeah, some, somebody was on the yard and a helicopter came yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, funny enough, actually, when I was at Grendon, um, there was a governor got transferred into Grendon and he'd come from Whitemore. And bear in mind, this was a jail I was hoping to go to. And they had an escape at Whitemore where they had, I think it was three or four IRA terrorists actually get out of the special secure unit and actually get over the wall and fired. They actually fired a gun at uh, one of the dog handlers as they were making their escape. And uh, the governor's wife was an, uh, an, a prison auxiliary and it was her first shift <laughs> working in the prison and she yeah. worked in the control room. <laughs> Oh, and I remember it was her first shift. <laughs> did they get caught? They did, yeah. They were caught literally, you know, within within a couple of hours. I think they were all oh, caught. Unlucky. Yeah. <laughs> but reading the report afterwards, they, they, they had a, it's called the Woodcock Report, and it was not Woodcock, I think it was Woodcock Report. It was very, very interesting. The way they manipulated staff into letting them get away with doing what they wanted, like putting their curtains up in the association room so staff couldn't look in. And that's how they'd be manufacturing their... their rope ladders and tools and whatever <laughs> else. But the manipulation of the IRA at the time was incredible, you yeah. know. So you went from auxiliary to working in what was the next one? I went to High Point. I um I continued the recruitment, although I, I got, you know, four four knockbacks, so I thought I'll I'll continue. And I applied to um High Point Prison. And I was successful. So in February 97, I started at High Point, which was a category C prison in, um, it was in Suffolk. So not far from Bowie St. Edmunds. But the difference with High Point is it was like two jails. So you had High Point South, which was a male prison. And then 
there was a, a main road going through from sort of Haverhill. I think they, the, the town was to Bowser Edmonds. And on the other side, they called it High Point North. And that was uh, female prisons. So I believe prior to the females going there, it was maybe uh, uh, like a, a, a stroke CD cap sort of unit. So obviously people would go out to work and whatever else. But yeah, they, they sort of re-rolled it into a, a female and a male jail. So literally, although I was based on the south side and I worked with the guys, I could get a shift working on the north side with the females. So it was a bit of, you know, sort of, it was it was interesting, yeah. Female prisoners and male prisoners, totally different. How do they differ? I've got to ask that. Women are very, very, very bitchy. Um, <laughs> whereas if a guy's got a problem with you or a, a guy's got a problem with another prisoner, they'll probably go and sort it out in a, in a cell or, or they'll wait until they're in the showers. The females will tell you in front of the girl she has a problem with what she's done. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be a case of, right, I'm going to sort you out later. She's just done this. She, her there, she's just done this. And they, they oh, yeah, just bitchiness. <laughs> Is there more violence in the male or the female? I never saw any violence, if I'm honest with you. Um, certainly while I was at High Point on the female side, I did a little bit of detached duty at Holloway, which I'll, I'll get on to. There was a bit of violence there. Again, but that's a totally different jail where High Point would be a sentence prison. Holloway it was a local prison. So you'd be getting people off the streets. A lot of people obviously if they're on drugs, they're detoxing and they're going through all that sort of drama as well. So it is, yeah, two, two separate different entities really. But violence wise, no, I never really saw any. No. Who was your first principal officer? I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, in fact, I can. It was a PO. His name was, yes, Mr. O- my, my first principal officer, I remember the day I started. So I'd gone for my training. I'd done my eight weeks training up in, um, up in Wakefield. Got um, posted to South 5, which was an enhanced unit. So basically, the guys on that unit were the ones who sort of progressed through the system, kept their heads down, got put on like the um, the best of everything sort of thing. You know, their, their visits were a little bit longer than everybody else's. Um, there was still no TVs in the cells at those times. In fact, I don't even think they had power in the cells. So if you had a radio, you had to buy yourself batteries and that sort of stuff. But yeah, my first PO, I remember the first shift, he says, come with me, lad. Took me into the uh, staff room. And he says, right, there's a locker's here. We'll get you a, a locker identified. Um, this is where the coffee and tea is. We have a tea boat, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. Then he said to me, he says, right, your job on a morning when you come into work is get the detail. So that'll tell you who's working on the wing. Take the detail into the kitchen. Obviously, it says on the board what people drink and you are to make them coffees and teas and I was basically did see by and it was like an initiation to an extent you know and like my dad did say to me when I joined keep your eyes open your ears open and keep your mouth shut don't question it if they tell you to do it just do it because this is what it was like we had an officer on my wing who did not speak to me for 12 months because I was new and this is what it was like in, in the old days I was a new officer he didn't want anything to do with me. I could sit next to him in an office and he would just totally blank me. Oh, really? But we had um we had another officer there. I mean, my my other role there was obviously being a tea boy as well. I was the clean officer. So then again, I had to come in in the morning. I would have to unlock the prisoners or the survey workers. We'd then have to go to the kitchen with a trolley, come back. 
And then we would obviously give porridge to the prisoners. There was a, a guy there who'd be making toast, so we'd get a slice of the toast. There was a big water urn, so that had to be filled up. And that was one of my responsibilities. First thing when I came in, get the urn filled up, get it turned on, ready for breakfast. Um, again, at lunchtime, you know, or I, I would supervise the prisoners on the wing cleaning. So I would be responsible to telling them what areas to clean and giving them their bleaches and whatever else, you know, because you couldn't let them have it unsupervised, you know. Um, lunchtime, again, I'd have to call my survey workers over. We'd all go up to the kitchen. We'd pick up the food. We'd come back down. Stuff would be sat in the office chatting away while I'm obviously, I'm running around like a lunatic doing all this stuff. And then another job of, of mine as clean officer would be I would stand on the other side of the hot plate serving the main meal. So although we had prisoners doing the chips and the, the rice and the puddings and the veg and whatever, I was doing the main menu so it would be i don't know burgers or or um fish you know I, I we'd have a list so we'd know who was who was on what sort of menu but i would give them the main menu and that was obviously to make sure it wasn't over overgiven so i've never heard of that of an officer being made to serve food yeah, uh, yeah that's usually that. one of the, the top prison jobs yeah now it is yeah yeah certainly now it is but yeah that was that was my role i put my little white jacket on my little white hat and Stand there, slopping out. <laughs> That's a popular job, but census officer must have been a job that they didn't like. Census <laughs> was the job to do. Basically, you went in an office, you shut the door behind you, you had your cup of coffee, which probably the tea boy had made, you know, for me, and then you would just go for the post and you'd, you'd be reading letters coming in. You'll be re- reading letters going out because obviously prisoners can't seal the envelopes when they're going to be posted out. They have to be left open. So we'd censor them. You'd have a letter sheet, which again, is all gone now. I mean, this is all, all by the by, but you'd record when the letters were being posted out and when they came in. And I remember sitting in the office one day and this officer turned out to me, he'd been in a job about nine or 10 years he was South African. I loved this guy. I really liked him. And he went to me, so how long have you been in the job now? I went, four months. Four months? Censors? And in front of me, bearing in mind, he's got the detail for the following day in front of him. He got his pencil. He rubbed my name out. <laughs> stuck his name on censors and put me on cleaners. He went, oh. Tomorrow you're on cleaners. And he was just an officer, mm-hmm. same grade as me. But... You did as you were told. What were you looking for to censor? What were you looking for? I suppose... Um, I mean, did you censor stuff? Yeah, I mean, not really. I mean, the main thing in the post coming in, we'd yeah. like, you wouldn't get any explicit photos, for instance. That's That sort of stuff wasn't right. allowed. So the post would come in, it'd be unsealed. So not allowed nude photos of the girlfriends, no, things like they, that. They, that sort of stuff. Would, it, they were, but depending on... The How explicit. Yeah, explicit. Yeah. Um, you'd, you'd obviously get money sent Jen's in. wondering where you draw the line on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also wondering what's the, the rudest letter you've read. I wouldn't say the rudest, but I remember listening to a phone call, which was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Okay. And this is years later when I worked in Swaleside and I was on nights and I was up in the control room and I was bored and I thought I'll do some telephone censoring. Because I worked in security, it was one of the jobs I could do. And I remember him just going through all these different clips of people talking to their mates. I remember, you know, 
there was a well-known uh, snooker player whose dad was in there at the time. Oh, yeah. I, oh, know, I know exactly who yeah, that is. You'd listen yeah. to, can I say his name? Yeah, Sullivan. Yeah. Sullivan, yeah. yeah. And I'd listen to his phone calls and you'd have like Ray Reard and another famous snooker player really? would be chatting to him or somebody else. <laughs> and they'd, they'd be, at a, I don't know, some sort of tournament, I suppose, and they'd phone up and yeah. all these different, you know, famous snooker players would be talking to him, you know. But this particular one, it was, it was bizarre. I remember the prisoner phoned up his girlfriend and it was literally a case of, have you got it? Give me a minute. And you hear the door go and she's come back into the room and she's obviously nothing said. And then next week you just heard a lot of moaning. <laughs> and then a lot of, sort of deep breaths going. <laughs> and this went on for three and four minutes. And then, right, okay, I'll, I'll speak to you tomorrow. <laughs> so obviously she was playing with herself while he was obviously in the telephone booth on the wing playing with himself <laughs> <laughs> so they would just listen to each other wow romantic <laughs> <laughs> so then there was drug seizures at visitation first exchange yeah um, I remember being on visits I didn't have a clue really what I was doing you know and I remember sort of walking around the tables and you sort of you know trying to be a presence but not really knowing what I'm meant to be doing and I remember seeing a guy with, uh, with his two visitors and he was the visitor was sat with his hand on the table but his his clench was fi- uh, fist was clenched and he'd, he'd get a, a crisp out of a packet but instead of using the left hand or whatever it was he'd lean across and I kept thinking it's a bit weird his, his, his hand's just staying there and I remember saying to a colleague of mine I said that bloke's hand just doesn't move. You know, he'll, he'll lean across and get a crisp with his right hand, yet the left hand still stood. And he says, well, go ask him what he's got. I went, what? Just go ask him what he's got. And he walked over. This is officer. Just walked over this, this, this visitor, took hold of his hand, turned it over, opened the, you know, the fist, and there it was, a big block of cannabis. <laughs> so the guy was obviously waiting for his time to uh, yeah. do the pass. But what they used to do was they would, eat a packet of crisps and they drop the cannabis into the crisps mm. and then leave the, the crisp packet on the table. So as you then get the experience in the job, you start getting um, ideas of body language and you'd find people, they would do, um, they would stretch a lot and they'd yawn a lot and they'd look around a lot or you'd get the knee bouncing up and down. And <laughs> these are sort of, but the bit was the body language you'd look for. You know, a, you know, a, a, a guy would open a packet of crisps and then the, the crisp packet would be on the table. Now, if I eat a packet of crisps, I'll eat them until they're gone. I won't just pick. And these are the sort of things you start picking up. And then many a time you'd walk around and you'd grab a packet of crisps off a table, open it up, and there'd be cannabis in there more. And once it's passed, do they secrete it in the back passage? Yeah, a lot of them used to, they, they call it plugging. So what they would do, yeah, they'd sort of look around and then they'd, straight away I mean some of them would be blatant some of them would be pretty discreet I got tasked uh, when I was at Swaleside to watch a particular visitor because they knew he was going to bring something pretty substantial in and what they'd said to me was we want you to go down to the visitor centre bear in mind again I worked in security at this time so it was all you know part of my job go over to the visitor centre have a chat with the visit the ladies behind the desk who booking the visitors in and Basically, she's going to point out this visit to you because we haven't got a clue who he is. So she's going to say like Mr. Jones War, Mr. Bloggs, whatever his name is. So I'm, d- I'm down the visitor centre and I'm talking to the, the lady who's booking all the visitors in and she's, she's highlighted this guy to me. So then my job was then was to go to the gate and then start helping with rubbing down 
the visitors going in, obviously the male male visitors, so you give them a pat down search. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Coro Snacks. Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to the customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. doesn't get healthier than this because all those other snacks have refined sugars, colours, preservatives and additives. Koro's snacks have none of that. I oh, can't wait. So I'm going to go for the bio energy ball today. Ooh, Salty nice. pistachio. I've got a little uh, chocolate bar here, I think. Oh, the coconut chocolate bar. Mmm. Mmm. Oh, Want to try it? Ooh. <laughs> so what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro avoids using sulfur, refined sugars, preservatives, colours and other additives. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. And I was told, right, make sure you search this guy and do a good search on him because we are... 99.9% he's got something coming in and it's substantial and I remember going over to the uh, gate and again just being all sort of you know oh I'll give you a hand guys you seem to be quite busy so I started rubbing down a few people come over here sir please you know this is the guy I'm, I'm targeting and I gave him a really really good search nothing on him great so I've gone up to the visitors uh, visits hall and um, obviously we're on the radio you know, uh, to each other's security department. And this is right. We want you to sit on this table, literally. I want you to stand a good distance away, but not too far away that if something happened, you're there. And I just sat on this table literally for an hour. And I just, my arms folded, watching this guy have his visit. Sort of not being blatant that I was staring specifically at him, but watching him. And they started getting nervous. You could see it. They were looking at me a lot. The arm, you know, the, the legs would go in, the, the yawning and the stretching of the arms, and it was it was getting close to the end of visits. And literally, as we called time off, everybody, can you start finishing off. The guy has jumped up, grabbed a parcel from the visitor, so the prisoner's taking something from the from the visitor, and he's trying to put it straight down the back of his trousers. I was on him like a shot. Apparently, they they had it on CCTV, and it said it was like me coming across the table like Superman. <laughs> grabbed hold of this guy, got him down on the floor, got the drugs. And literally, as we stood him up, his trousers had fallen down. He's obviously not wearing any underwear, so he's then exposed himself to the whole of the visits hall. And he had a, a parcel. How the hell this guy was going to get it up there, I do not know. But it was huge. And we, we, we got it. Yeah, we got it. There was apparently there was heroin in there. There was crack in there. There was all sorts. Um, obviously he then got arrested. So then they gave me the pleasure of arresting the visitor. So we took him into a room. Um, obviously the prisoner has been taken off. He was taken down a seg and then he was searched and whatnot. And then they decided to put him back on the wing. Um, I was, took the visitor into a room, arrested him and then waited for the police to turn up. And then they would again arrest him and take him off. What happened after that? I don't know if I'm honest with you. I believe he did get time for it. But we do know that the um, the prisoner 
he'd, he'd actually paid somebody else to do the visit. So the guy who received the drugs wasn't the guy who was getting the drugs. He was going to receive them, go back to the wing, pass them on. He was a mule. He was a mule. Mm-hmm. So basically, again, we got it on the, on the, uh, the, the telephones. You know, um, he's obviously heard there was an alarm bell, something going on in visits. His dad apparently had been the guy driving this visitor to the jail. And he just phones his dad up and says, Dad, scoot. And that was a phone call. So he's obviously his dad was involved in it as well. And, um, Are you allowed to do strip searches? We do do strip searches, um, but it's got to be done obviously a professional way where you can only have two members of staff in the, um, in the cell or the booth or the room. You can only take the top half of the clothing off, then get them to put it back on, and then you would do the lower half of the clothing. In America, it's so different. I mean, I was getting strip searched two or three times a day at one point, completely naked. Mm-hmm. Bend over, turn around, spread your buttocks, cough, and mm. looking right at your backside. And there's even a foreskin search. Really? Yeah. No, we don't. We don't do anything like before, that. Before I'm lucky though, because before I got arrested, they had the finger wave where a guy actually put a glove on and put his finger in the, in the bomb. <laughs> Crikey! That got ruled unconstitutional because it led to sexual assaults and all mm. kinds of situations. Yeah, we were not allowed yeah. to touch the uh, touch the, the person. Right. So any any skin, would... you don't touch any skin. So right. that's how he would have got that huge package. He just popped it up there and. He would have popped it up there, gone onto the wing, and then he would have got it back out again. Oh, wow. If they can get it up far enough, but we 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 would not be allowed to. If you know, if it was hanging out, we would not be allowed to pull it out. We, so, we wouldn't have allowed it do you have what's out. called like a dry cell for a situation like that, where you put someone in it and they got to poop it out eventually? There was a. We didn't have a well. At the time, there was no real protocol for mm. prisoners who'd received articles on a visit. But what had happened, I believe, it was a couple of years. It might be that. The year later, it was Christmas Eve. A guy had taken a pass on the visit. He went to the seg. Obviously, he's got the drugs on him. They put him in a cell and they unlocked him in the morning and he was dead. And obviously, the package, had I think it swallowed it and it had burst. So then they they brought in a drugs protocol where you would basically be keeping an eye on him and checking him. And, you know, he, he was literally slung in a cell, door shut. Treat like everybody else. Now the protocol is you would keep an eye on these people. But with regards to, and this is what I can't understand, like the uh, customs, for instance, you put them in a cell where if they use a toilet or probably soak, you know, take it away and clean it and then it'll end up somewhere else. No, we don't have that. So people, yeah, they could probably swallow you it. They'd like x-ray and give them a laxative, everything. Yeah, no. It's too costly. <laughs> So then you do the basic regime units. Was that after? Yeah, in in High Point, um, they had on one of the units, it was called South 4, and they had what they call the BRU, which was the basic regime unit. Now, within the prison system, you have three levels of incentives. So you have basic, which basically meant you get nothing. Nowadays, you would not have a television. In those days, they didn't have televisions anyway. But the BRU was a unit where you spent 23 and a half hours a day behind your door. So it's like a segregation unit, but it wasn't a seg. So it's a bit different. They would come out on a, I think it was a Tuesday and a Friday for half an hour to shower and make a phone call. And the rest of the time they would be on their door and you would go onto the unit, it would be on the, the first landing. You would push the t- survey trolley across the door, open the door. The guy would then come to his door with a trolley in between you and you would feed him the food, hand it over, door would be shut. And that was pretty, 
pretty stark. And the I can't can't remember exactly what the criteria was, but if you got put on basic, I think the minimum certainly back in ninety seven was about fourteen to twenty one days. That was a minimum period, but they had like two levels. So basic one, where you got absolutely nothing and plenty of it, and then basic two, where you were allowed, for instance, to have a little bit extra time on a visit, and you were trusted to go to the visit on your own. So you'd be unlocked, you'd walk to the visits hall, you'd walk back on your own. As basic one, you'd be escorted to the visits hall, you'd be escorted back to the visits hall. It was slightly different. Then obviously you've got your um, standard regime where most people who were in prison would come in on a standard regime. They get the same amount of pay, um, same privileges, and then the enhanced would be a little bit more where certainly when television started to come in, if you were an enhanced prisoner, you would then be given a, a television. So you could have a television. Joe Bloggs next door didn't, and the incentive was for him to behave himself, so he would then... What type of prisoners would you get on the basic regime unit? They were anybody. I mean, we had... Uh, one of my surfy workers was on there. He was a, a good lad, not an issue, never a problem. I can't remember if it was a weekend off or I'd, I'd gone on leave and come back, and he was on the BRU. And I believe he'd possibly taken a, um, a drugs test and failed it. Do they get uh, bedding in there? Oh, absolutely, yes, yeah. The only difference with the segregation unit, from what I can remember, and I sort of do think this is like 20 or nearly 30 years ago, did it really happen? I'm pretty sure it did. I'm sure I used to see them in the seg have to take their bedding out of the cell and put their bedding outside their cell door. So they were in the cell with nothing, basically. Absolutely nothing. So in the morning, you'd unlock them, you'd have the breakfast, you'd then go back and it'd be selling mop. So you'd give them a broom, the broom sweep the, the, the cell out, you'd give them a mop, then mop it out, and then the bedding all came out of the cell. Rough trying to sleep with no yeah. mattress. And I, I can't, I can't <sighs> recall if the mattresses were taken out, but yeah. I'm pretty sure they were, you know. Yeah. I'm pretty sure their mattresses came out as well. So they, they got nothing. So that was the sort of difference, I suppose, between the segregation and the BRU, you know. So it was a little bit, bit different in there. A cell was unlocked by mistake? Yeah, that was me. Oh, no. <laughs> and the contents. We had, we had a guy who was on what they call a rottle, which is release on temporary license. So he was obviously coming towards the end of his sentence. Bear in mind, we're a cat seat jail anyway. Security is not as high as it would be in like locals or dispersals. Um, this chap had gone on, on um, sort of like a home leave. He'd probably got 48 hours, 72 hours at home. I didn't realise it. So i am come on the landing one day, you know, I'm unlocking doors. I've unlocked all the cells, not realising this guy wasn't there. We'd gone on home leave. And one of the co- my colleagues come into the office and said, who's unlocked, I don't know, number 12. I went, yeah, me. He's on home leave. I went, you what? He said, he's on home leave and his cell's empty. And what had happened was in the time, me unlocking that cell, and my colleague noticing it, the prisoner had already gone in there and literally took everything. So all the guy's canteen was gone, um, his radio, I think, had gone, you know, CDs, that's whatever he had in there was gone. And they went, when he comes back, you can explain to him what happened. And that's what I had to do and say to this guy, bit of humble pie, Ben, my a prisoner and I'm an officer, but I'm sorry, mate, but I made a bit of a mistake and I unfortunately unlocked your cell. And I think it's been nicked. Does it have to be replaced? 
I can't remember what happened, if I'm honest with you, Sean. I can't remember. I certainly got a big bollock, and I know I, I got bollocking from a boss like that. <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was. Was he a well-respected prisoner? To be fair with you, I don't think he was a bother because I think with the bottles, I think he got to the stage where he literally had weeks to go, mm. you know, and I think it might have been a case of, okay, go fair play. You know, thanks for being honest with me. I, I can't remember, but I never got any issues. So there was never an issue between me and him, or we we never had an argument about it or anything like that. You know, it was just I put my hands up. I make a mistake if, I, if it's a, to a colleague or to a prisoner, I'll put my hands up and say, look, you know, he's probably going to give it all away anyway when he was. That's right. And that's what they do. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, 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 they'll give all the, their belongings away anyway. So, but yeah, it was just the embarrassment of it all. And it just it just shows you, you know, you've got to be switched on. You've got to be aware. You need to be, you know, when you have a briefing in the morning, they tell you don't unlock 24 you don't unlock 24 you know so your next stop was a prison I spoke at a couple of times but the, the, it doesn't exist anymore does it HMP Holloway that's that's now closed yeah yeah um I'd been at high point for just over a year so I'd got through my probationary period so once you're signed off probation in the good old days you could transfer um my wife at the time had decided she didn't want to live in Colchester any longer, so we sold the house and she'd moved back to Aldershot. Um, but I was still working up in um, up in High Point, so I thought I'd put in for a transfer closer to home. So I ended up um, applying for High Down, which is in Sutton. Um, and I got the transfer and they said to me, well, look, you know, you've got two weeks left in this jail. We need some detached duty at Holloway. What we're going to do is send you on detached duty I spent, I think it was 10 days in Holloway. And like I said, it was totally different from the High Point North I was used to when I worked on there very occasionally. Holloway was what you saw on the television. Women screaming out the windows. There was a lot of fighting going on. Holloway was a very strange sort of setup. Um, they had on the ones was like the healthcare department. They had the detox. I remember being in the detox unit on a Saturday evening. And this was the days where prisoners were out in the evening. And my job was to stand outside the shower, one in, one out. You never let more than one prisoner in a shower, you know. And that was literally my role for the day, was to stand there, one in. I'm off for a shower. No, you're not. Somebody in there, come back in a minute. You know, the screaming as you went on there, it was it was like an asylum. The screaming and people detoxing. And, oh, it was oh, awful. Christ. The twos, I can't remember what the twos was. If, if anything, it might have been where all the offices were. I, I can't remember. Um, I, I was predominantly on the freeze landing. So basically, you'd have A3, B3, C3, D3. And it'd be like on corridors. So we'd come to the end of the corridor, it'd take a left turn. And then there'd be a door. And you'd go for the door and there'd be another corridor. And so then that would be um, C2. And then you've got a corridor, another corridor, then there'd be a door go for that door, C3. It was a very, very, very strange setup. Cells um, were single cells or they were dormitories. So I think majority of them were dormitories. So you had four females in a dormitory. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just, you know, it was just, I don't know, totally, totally different from what I was used to. I suppose being with females was, I didn't really work with them that often in high points. So I didn't really know the sort of boundaries is supposed like, you know, you know, if, if two women are fighting, you know, do, do I get involved and break them up and restrain them? Like, you know, not that I want to restrain a woman, you know, it was all, it was all totally new to me, but it was an eye 
eye-opener. I remember there was a big call for um, assistance in the education department because there was a big fight going on. And what had happened was these girls were hitting each other with shoes. But the rest of them had made a big sort of circle around them to stop the staff getting to them to split them up. And they were there battering each other with shoes. <laughs> Do you know what? It was over. No idea. <laughs> I had no idea. Probably girlfriends because a lot of them were, there was a yeah. lot of relationships going on in, in Holloway. Yeah, but you'd have a girl, you know, I remember one girl um, crying her eyes out because her girlfriend was leaving, you know, and the following day she got released. And I think by lunchtime she's got herself a new girlfriend. <laughs> it was so surreal, you know, when you're not used to that sort of, you know. Yeah. So being that other prisoners were having um, relationships with other prisoners, were you any aware of any relationships going on with any of the guards? No, not at all. No, not there? No, not there. Have you throughout any of the services? I have since in, in pre- or later jails. Okay. I have, yeah, I've found out, you, you know, you, you Work with people, and you found out they've obviously had a, um, a relationship with a prisoner. Uh, certainly, when I was at Send, for instance, uh, there was a female. She actually worked at Holloway, and it turned out she was involved with a life at Holloway, and obviously that life has been transferred to Send. Possibly when Holloway closed down, she then got transferred. I think she ended up at High Down first, and then she didn't like it and decided to come to uh, Send. And it all turned out she was having a relationship with this prisoner and she ended up going to jail for it. Mm. She ended up, yeah, she got convicted. So then you were uh, based over in High Down at the Vulnerable... Yeah, I went, um, I did my my 10 days at Holloway. Um, Then my my sort of transfer day officially started at High Down. So I went to High Down, which at the time was a Category A prison. So it wasn't a dispersal. It was a local jail, so they still... Uh, supplied prisoners to and from court. You had sentenced prisoners there, obviously. You had a lot of remand prisoners there, but you also had Category A prisoners there. I think the amount was 20 maximum um, Category A prisoners high down was allowed to hold. Um, I got put on house block two, which was, uh, you had three spurs. So it was a house block. As you walked onto the house block, you would have three spurs, eight, well, I say they weren't A, B, or C, or one, two, three, but it was just one spur on the left. No, they were A, B, C, sorry, yes. A spur, B spur, C spur. Um, a spur and C spur were just main run-of-the-mill prisoners, and B spur was a VPU. So I got put on a VPU. Um, wasn't sure how I felt about it at the time, but then... I got sort of interested in sort of what these people were in for. I didn't go reading through, you know, records and notes. You, you got, you sort of did that when you first joined a job, and then after a while, you, you get bored of it. But I thought, you know, like anybody who joins a prison service, I want to do something which is going to help people. So I applied to become a sex offender treatment program tutor. Yeah. Uh, and the process was very long. I think it took about eight months for me to actually put my application in to go through the different stages of interviews. I mean, I was interviewed by psychologists to see my suitability. And then I went off and I did two weeks training in Harrogate where we did um, the training to become uh, facilitators on the course. And it was a six-month program. So the SOTP program lasted for six months. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I think I lasted about six weeks. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't listen to what these guys were coming out with. Um, I didn't want it to clive my judgment on people. I'd then had a child. So from applying, 
you know, I had no kids to by the time I got to the end of my training, I suddenly got a little baby boy. Um, totally changed his mindset. Um, we, I mean, one thing that comes to mind every day was we had what we used to call a five minute moan. So we'd get them into the, into the, um, classroom every morning and we'd say, right, you've got five minutes to get anything off your chest. And we had this one guy every single morning he'd complain about his parole, his upcoming parole. And he was struggling with the course, but if he didn't get the course completed, he wouldn't get his parole. And I just got sick of listening to this guy. It was all about him. You know, forget his victims. It was all about him feeling sorry for himself all the time, you know? And I, we had a really, it was, I say it's, it's a very, very, very long program, but you, you you have what you call a hot seat. So each prisoner would have their chance in a hot seat and they would sit in a chair in the middle of the room and people would ask them questions about their offences. Oh, oh. that was rough, And yeah. the excuses they come out with then, it was, well, I was abused when I was a child, so it was normal for me to go on and abuse somebody myself. You know, and it was like, this isn't an excuse. And we had one guy in particular, I think it was, I think it was this, this old guy. I don't really want to talk about it. it was, I mean, I can if you want. I know, I, I remember his offence. I think pretty, the viewers would be fascinated. Yeah, yeah. He, he basically, um, he abused his daughter. He was a big man. I mean, he was 72 years of age. I remember him. 72 years of age, a big bloke. You could see when he was certainly younger, he would have been, he would have been a bit of a unit, you know. Um, certainly came across as being a sort of very, very, um, strong personality, you know. A big, big bloke. Um, he, he'd abused his daughter. I think it was from the age of six until she got to about 14 years of age. He abused her. He, Use all the excuses. His, his, his relationship was from with his wife wasn't going very well, so we'd obviously turn on his his daughter for his desires, whatever else. But what really struck me, and I think this is probably what tipped me over the edge, was he then went on to abuse his daughter's children. Oh. And what I couldn't get my head around was this poor girl who had been abused for possibly eight, ten years by her father. But then she'd left her children in his care. And then he'd gone to abuse them. And that's why I could never get my head around. That's hard to go. You know? yeah. And I remember coming out of the, um, the, the session one day. We'd, we'd done a morning session. And where the classroom was, we had the survey at the end of the, the, sort of the hallway. And one of the hot players came up to me and goes, are you right, sir? And I went, yeah, yeah. He goes, look, go. He said, I totally respect what you were doing in there. He says, but these people don't deserve, you know, what they get. He says, I like blondes and brunettes. He said, and I will never change. I will always like blondes and brunettes. These people like kids and whatever you do, whatever you say, it'll never stop. And I thought, you know what? In a way, you're actually right. I'm sitting in this room with these 12 blokes talking about their offences. I'm not going to change them. I'm not going to stop them reoffending. I can't imagine how you kept your cool in that situation. It's very, very difficult. How I felt. Very, very difficult. Mm. They should have given him really a life was. sentence when he abused his daughter, and then oh, he would I, have had access to his grandkids. I remember his, his sentences would have been like 120, 130 years, but because he got 10 years for each count um, concurrent, he was doing 10 years maximum. Pathetic. But all he wanted, you know, as I said, all he was bothered about was my parole, my parole, my parole. Because on this channel, we're campaigning for an end to the mass incarceration of low-level drug users, using all that resources to keep the bloody predators behind bars for longer. Absolutely. And also, the Americans are um, making some of them have chemical castration. 
Well, you? what do you think about that? I would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree with that. Absolutely. 100%. Well, Absolutely. Let us know, viewers, if you're watching this, do you agree with chemical castration for these monsters? Put it in the comments. Yeah. Well, so yeah, you had to leave there after. I did period. the, I did the sort of six weeks and I said to my boss, I can't do this any longer. And I remember she gave me a hard time over it. Okay. Yeah. You'd, you'd, you'd invested a lot of money into training me and getting me through the process. And I suppose at the end of the day, it affected her figures because then I've left the, the group. They had to get enough a facilitator in to continue, but I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You know, I, I gave it a go. That's all I could say. I gave it a go. It wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. Michael Stone was the next. Yeah, Michael Stone. Michael Stone um, at the time was on remand and he was on remand for the suspected murder of, can I say the name? The, the victim. The victim, she, she yeah. De- is he or she deceased? Yes. Yeah? Yes, yeah. it was Meg, uh, Meg and Lynn Russell, I believe the names were. Mm-hmm. And I believe there was a third daughter who actually did survive. And Michael Stone was on remand at um, High Down at that time as a Category A prisoner for the murders of these two uh, victims and the uh, attempted murder of the third daughter. Um, subsequently, he went on to get convicted. I think the first trial, they couldn't reach a verdict. So he then got put back on remand or he got convicted. I think he went for an appeal, won the appeal, got put back on remand and then went for an, another trial and then got convicted. And I think he got 25 year recommendation, life sentence with 25 years. But I would spend a lot of time talking to him because he'd always come up to me. So he'd have his depositions or his court papers and he'd sort of like, you know, I'm confused. Can you explain this to me? And I'd, I'd sit and talk to him about, you know, what, what, what was in the paperwork. And I wasn't convinced he'd done it, if I'm totally honest with you. And I said this at the time and I said, I remember saying to a colleague on the wing, I don't think Stone's responsible. He was a drug, a drug addict. He admitted that his sort of MO, his way of, making his money was to steal lawnmowers. And I remember him saying to me, Gov, all I do, I nick lawnmowers, sell them for my drug money. Uh, he said, I didn't do this. And you know what? Over time, you sort of, you don't know, do you? But something's always been in the back of my mind that I don't They got the think, wrong guy. Yeah, I what, don't think What was the circumstances it. of the murders? Do you know? I think it was just opportunal. Um, I mean, now they're talking... Um, were they kids? Were they adults? Uh, there was an adult uh, and the two children. I think the children were very young. I think they were seven, six, seven, And they were years. intercepted somewhere, were they? They were like abducted? Or... No, they were walking. I believe they were just walking down a country lane, walking the dog. Um, and then this car's pulled up. Guys got out, tied them up and killed them with a hammer. Yes. And like I said, the third daughter actually survived it, and I think she lives in Wales now. I mean, she's obviously grown up now. Could she not, in, not identify the perpetrator? Being that you think, or did she identify Michael Stone? I, I don't know if I'm honest with you, Jan. I'm, I'm not sure. Awful. People are googling this. Yeah, but I, in America, they estimate up to a third of the people on death row are innocent. Mm. And we've seen the corruption, and yeah. the police want to solve the case as fast as possible. So, you know. Things like that, and yeah, it, it, all kinds can happen. So Easterbrook? Yeah, Easterbrook, you've probably heard on some of your other podcasts, uh, he was a Category A prisoner, he was down in healthcare. Um, I, again, I don't know too much about his background, but I believe he tried to blow himself out of a uh, uh, prison van, and I believe that when he, he put the explosions, it actually blew blew up, I suppose, out, I, suppose. I don't know how it all worked, but he blew his fingers off. Oh. 
Um, but Easterbrook was in our healthcare department and he was on a hunger strike. And I think he, he was on a hunger strike for about a year and a half, you know. He's, really? <laughs> he, he, uh, yeah, he was, he was obviously having Mars bars and bits and pieces passed through, his, <laughs> passed through his self by the orderlies and stuff. But yeah, he was, I think in his, his, his early days, he was quite a nasty piece of work. Uh, but I had sort of the only dealings with him was when, for instance, I was on nights, I'd be placed down a healthcare unit for the, for the week, maybe. And, uh, I would obviously, obviously have to check on him and speak to him because he was on that document because he was on hunger strike and filling the appropriate paperwork. But he, if we've sort of recalling anything about him, I don't think he really engaged at all with staff. No, I, I'm unaware of his story. What was his backstory? I'm not sure. You're not, I'm not sure? sure? No, no. What was he in for? I think he was doing a life. I think he was doing a life sentence. Um, but for what I, I, as I said, I don't know, but I know he, I said, I do know he, I think he had some Semtex and he tried to blow himself out of a prison van and it all went wrong. How did he get the Semtex? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Unlucky. So yeah, your next, uh, encounter is with the, an IRA. Yes, um, house plot four. I was on, uh, an evening duty. So the duty was basically from five o'clock to nine o'clock. And I remember getting a cell bell going off, you know, the prisoners have got uh, little buzzers in their cell. So we say for emergency uses only. So if there's emergency in the cell, they'll press the bell and we'll go and respond. And I remember going to this cell and this guy's an Irish accent, smallest bloke. He goes, I want you to post this in the letterbox for me. And I went, no, you can do it in the morning when you, uh, you get unlocked. And this guy literally, bang, switched started threatening me, started threatening to kill me. I'm going to do your family. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It turned out he was actually an IRA, or he was a member of the IRA, who subsequently, some years later, got convicted of a murder of a lawyer. I don't know if you know, there was a lawyer got, um, I think she was shot. We're going back quite a few years ago now, but I believe he was behind it all. Um, McGuigan or something like that, I think his name was. But they, I do know they made a film about it. But I, I got told, and I don't know if it was true, but he, he sort of arrived at High Down and he left. Literally, it was, he wasn't there long. He was there a couple of days. You know, he, he landed and he was gone. Um, but I think they were just moving him around until he was going back to Ireland of repatriation. So I don't know exactly, but yeah, I do remember this guy though thinking some years later, I remember him. He's a guy threatened to kill me on house plot four because I won't post his letter. <laughs> Do you know what the film is called? I, I, I'll find out. Find out for me, yeah. yeah. Good film. It's a good film. <laughs> so you met the Keneally double rapist? Yeah, we had a guy on a unit uh, on the VPU and Keneally was, um, he was a young guy. He was only about 22 years of age, category A prisoner. Um, been in and out of jail, I believe, for quite a few years for burglary. And he'd gone out on New Year's Eve, this particular year. Again, I can't remember the year. It might be 99, 98. New Year's Eve, he broke into a house and he actually raped the uh, woman of the house. He then raped her six-year-old daughter. Oh, Christ. And then from what we gather, he waited later on in the night he stayed there obviously took him hostage and then raped him again I think he raped him twice he buggered him and and raped him as well Um, obviously got convicted and he got a life sentence he got 25 years minimum for that one but I remember in the papers um, reading a story because I was up in Harrogate at the time doing my SOTP training 
I believe it was the elder daughter of the woman who'd been raped and the sister of the young girl who'd been raped. She'd actually killed herself. She'd oh. um, killed herself in a... Um, I think she drowned in a fountain in Hyde Park or she jumped oh. into pond in Hyde Park and actually, yeah, killed herself. Again, I'll, I'll have to look at the dates, but yeah, that was in, that was in the papers and it was her, it was her mum and she couldn't live with what happened to her mum and what had happened to her sister. Oh, yeah, killed herself. That's terrible. Um, and then we have Ronnie Knight, Barbara Windsor's ex-husband. Yeah, he, he was, he was in healthcare and I was, um, again, on nights in healthcare and, I just remember this cell bell going, sort of bimbling up there saying, what can I do for you? And he was laid in his bed, sort of stuck his nose down with his glasses and went, you can turn my light off now, thank you. <laughs> and I remember thinking, who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> I didn't know who he was. <laughs> Doesn't know what it matters. But, you know, I wasn't there to sort of run around turning your lights on and off. If you want your light turned off, mate, you can turn it off yourself, you know. But he, yes, you can turn my light off now. He was a decap prisoner. I think he'd just... Um, been in hospital for an operation. I think he was only like lodging at, at, um, at high down before he was due to go back to send, uh, to, um, not send, um, Ford prison, open prison. I believe that's where we're serving the rest of his sentence. Do you know about who Barbara Windsor is? Yeah. Oh, I thought you Carry were. Carry on and all that yeah, stuff. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, yeah she was in these standards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I was a kid when that, that, I was a kid when that was on the TV. <laughs> yeah. yeah he, was, he was quite a notorious gangster from what I gathered back in was the day, he? you know. Yeah. East End. Yes, that's yeah. right. Operation Tornado HSB4. Yeah, again, back at High Down. Um, we were in the summer. I was working on House Block 2. It was a Saturday after, It was a Saturday morning, actually. And I remember a couple of guys um, got called into the office and they disappeared. And we were banged the wing up for ready to sort of serve the lunch, lunch meal. And they basically, we were told in the brief before we started lunch, right, we've, we've lost two members of staff. We've had to send them over to house plot four. House plot four has got an incident going on. You know, everyone's trying to find out what the incident was. And it turned out they'd unlocked the, the wing to go on exercise. All the prisoners had gone into the exercise yard. And then they decided they weren't going to come off. <laughs> it was such a nice day. And it was, it was roasting hot. So we were told, obviously, continue our regime in the afternoon. I don't know how I managed to do it, but I managed to get myself over to house block four because I was quite nosy. And I eventually uh, ended up staying over there the all afternoon and there'd be like 60, 70 prisoners at one end of the exercise yard and we six or seven members of staff stood at the other end with the gate open ready for us to get out just in case, you know. And we were there observing them. And um, while we were observing the prisoners on the yard, they were getting staff from other areas to come in and they were having to move the prisoners who were cells facing onto the exercise yard, having to actually move them out of those cells elsewhere because they kept handing out water and food to them. And the idea is you cut off all their supplies of everything, being a hot day, hopefully eventually they're going to, you know, decide enough's enough. So it was one big sunbathing. Absolutely. But one big sunbathing afternoon for them. <laughs> for them all. Anyway, this went on for absolute hours. And I think it was around about seven o'clock in the evening. We were told, right, the tornadoes are here. And the tornado teams of the guys were trained to do riot controls and incidents, things like this, you know. So what we're going to start doing is slowly moving off the yard, just casually step off the yard one by one. We're going to lock the gate and then we're going to leave it to the to the professionals, let's say. And I think I was one of the last ones off the yard. I remember sort of casually walking off the yard and there's all these prisoners sort of stood there watching, you know. I think there was still about 50, 60 on there. 
And I literally walked through the gates and I ran as fast as I could upstairs <laughs> to get an advantage point over the exercise yard to see what was going on. And next minute, this gate opened and these teams of staff in riot gear and shields just run onto the exercise yard. And they ran on, went over and they formed a line all across the exercise yard. The prisoners at the far end were literally falling over each other to get as far back as they could because they didn't want to be the ones in front. Uh, it, it was amazing to watch. I'll be honest, it was amazing to watch. And um, every single prisoner, they were given the opportunity to surrender. And as soon as, you know, the guy on the, the megaphone shouted, right, you know, you can surrender or blah, blah, blah. Every single hand went up. <laughs> <laughs> and every single prisoner put their hands up <laughs> and thought, yeah, we ain't going to win this one. And then they had to be taken off one by one in a special way of doing it. Off the yard, obviously searched, taken down the block strip searched and then obviously then they were relocated but there was I think there was six prisoners who were identified as being the ringleaders and they were going they were going out so they were taken down the seg and they were being moved off they were getting shipped out to another jail and then obviously because I was hanging around being nosy I got highlighted oh come here right you're going to go to such and such a cell and pack his kit and then we had to start packing all the kit for these guys, going down reception with a property card to make sure we got the right property and not the cellmate's property. And I remember walking out of the prison, I think it was about half past 12 that night, or the Sunday morning, early hours of Sunday morning. I'd been there since, you know, eight o'clock Saturday morning, and I was due back in at half past seven. <laughs> but it was, to actually watch it, it was, it was amazing. And I thought, I'm going to do that one day. I'm going to get myself on there. <laughs> How did you figure out who was the ringleader? Because obviously prisons don't talk because then they'll be perceived as glass classes. Yeah. So it's all the intelligence. It's, it's, it's always a buildup of uh, intelligence. I think chances are the security problem probably had an inkling this was going to happen anyway. And I think it, 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 staff on the wing again would know who the sort of the main men are. So I suppose that, that sort of gets siphoned down to the governors and security department and they'll make a decision, right, we're going to get rid of that, that, that person. Who, so, who started the fire in healthcare? Well, that was a funny one. It was my last uh, shift in healthcare. Again, I was on nights and I used to get, I had no patience for people pressing their emergency cell bells because to me it was for an emergency. And this bell had gone and this guy got, I, I went up to this cell and this guy was in this, says, Gov, can I have a light? Now in those days, they could smoke in prison. I went, I haven't got a light for you. Well, I need a light. Can you get one from the cell across the uh, corridor? I went, no, you, I'm not getting you anything. I'm not passing you anything. Just get off your bell, leave it alone. Five minutes later, he's on his bell again. Gov, I want a light. I'm not getting you a light. And it got to stage, this guy started getting under my skin. And I said to him, like, you're really pissing me off now, mate. Stop pressing your bell, get your head down, go to sleep. I've gone back into the office. Bell's gone again. Right, I've, I'm, I'm losing it now. I've got up anyways. Gov, I don't need a light anymore. And bear in mind, he stood at the door and there's a big hatch which you could open and shut. And the hatches, basically, they were kept down all the time, really. And as he moved away from his door, he'd set his, uh, his bed on light. And what had happened, he'd actually managed to get the guy across the corridor to chuck him a box of matches. <laughs> and he thought, oh, I'll show you, screw. Set his bed on light. And it was literally... Shit, what do we do? And it was, you know, I had a nurse in there and he, he, I remember him grabbing the fire hose and we had to put the hose on and obviously hose him out and then we had to get the rest of the staff down to move him. I think he ended up in the block himself. But yeah, like that 
probably could have been avoided. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So your next stop was HMP Maidstone. Yes, Maidstone. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about Maidstone, Sean, because I didn't really like it there. Um, <laughs> I moved, um, excuse me, I moved house. Um, I said, when I'd gone to High Down and um, I moved from High Point to High Down because of my wife moved back to Watershop, um, we lived in a flat. And as I said earlier, my son had been born. And I didn't want to bring a baby up in a flat. So we couldn't really afford a house. Um, and I was chatting, chatting to uh, one of the dog handlers one day and he lived in Folkestone. And I was saying, oh, you know, I've got friends down there. And he goes, you want to move down? It's beautiful. You know, it's on the coast and uh, house prices are really good and it's not too far for traveling and whatever else. And I thought, you know what? It's worth having a look. So we eventually went down to Folkestone and we found a house and obviously we, we, we moved down there. And I was still traveling backwards and forwards to, uh, to high down at the time, about 75 miles, I think it was each way. But again, in the meantime, I put in for a transfer and I got accepted to go to Maidstone prison. And I turned up at Maidstone on a Monday morning, got met by the, um, training manager. He took me into his office, which was literally a shed. It was horrible. And I think I spent four days sat in this bloke's office, listening, chatting up his, PA or whatever you want to call her, his, you know, <clears throat> his assistant. And I was like sat there as if I, I felt I'd been, you know, been forgotten about, you know. Anyway, I eventually um, did my week's induction training, which everybody has to do. I got moved on to a wing called Kent Wing. And in uh, Maidstone, Kent Wing was the biggest wing in the jail. And it was full of the worst, I suppose. And again, being, um, I think it was a B-cat still at the time, Maidstone was. It wasn't fit for purpose. A lot of the staff had been there a long, long time. Again, we're talking, you know, 20 years experience. They didn't want to do anything. You know, you, I remember a story of, um, or knowing of two members of staff doing a cell search and apparently their cell search was to go into the cell, close the door, put the television on, watch TV for half an hour or read the newspaper, then walk out again and go, yep, that's it. <laughs> you know, that, that's the sort of people I was involved with. <clears throat> um, people just didn't want to get involved in anything, you know. Um, there was me and three members of staff from Belmarsh had transferred in around about the same time as well. Uh, and there was a lot of rumours going around that one of the new um, transfers was bent. So obviously it was very difficult to make friends with people because people were sort of taking a little bit step back from you because they didn't know who you were and all these rumours are going around. It certainly eventually came out. Uh, it was a guy who actually worked on Kenwood with me. Um, he'd come from Belmarsh Prison. And he'd been involved with a prisoner at Belmarsh. He was like a debt which had been carried on. So when he transferred out, he was sold as a going interest to another prisoner who was in Maidstone. And he was obviously then having to continue doing what he was doing. Um, and eventually, yeah, they did actually catch him, so, thankfully. I mean, obviously he was being corrupt. What was he doing? He was bringing, uh, he was bringing drugs in. Um, I, again, I don't believe mobile phones were the main issue at that stage of time, but he, he was certainly bringing drugs into the prison. Um, I think he might have been bringing vodka in or alcohol as well, you know. But yeah, he was up to his neck in it. And were there any other corrupt officers? Um, Maidstone, no. No, I didn't come across any more apart from him. But I said I was only there for 
I was there six months. And is that where you got used to do your tornado training? Yeah, I got my tornado training. I eventually got on there. I uh, got to do the tornado training, which was two weeks of absolute fantastic, you know, running around with people chucking bricks and pieces of wood at you. <laughs> and that, you know, it was really good fun. But with Mateson, I said it was very in, in, inactive. And staff didn't really want to do a lot, you know. And being Kentwing and being the biggest wing, we were always getting closed down. So we'd get shut down for like the Friday night and then we'd get cross-deployed to other wings and then they'd keep the other wings open, like the Life of Wing or the Sex Offender Wing. And I remember getting put onto a wing called Wheeled Wing. And Wheeled Wing was where the old Lifers used to be. Quite a big wing. I I can't remember what it held, 120 maybe, 130 prisoners. And I walked on there for the evening duty and the staff said to me, right, what we're going to do, we're going to stick you on the freeze office. You're going to do applications for half an hour. So as soon as we unlock, half an hour, stop apps. Once you've closed the application office down, we want you to go down to the association room. And at the bottom of the landing, there was a like a corridor that they sort of built onto the wing, obviously after it had been built years ago. And they built like a little snooker area in there, sort of snooker tables, pool tables. It was an area where they could cook their own food. And my job was to sit down there with another member of staff and obviously supervise the prisoners. And it was the guy who worked on Kentwood with me. And we were sort of sat there saying, you know, we've not seen anybody from this wing, you know, staff-wise, since we've been on here. And I remember going, well, I'm going to go and get a cup of coffee. I'll be back in a minute. Walked into the office and every single member of Wheeled Wing staff were sat in the office chatting. And they'd obviously used us to do their work for them. <laughs> and that's what Mayston was like, you know. And then um, a couple of, I think it was a couple of weeks later, I was on Kentwing again and we got shut down and it was a Sunday. We got shut down for the uh, for the day. So the prisoners were pissed off because, of, again, they were going to lose their association time. I got put on visits, I think, that afternoon. Every member of staff, literally bar one or two, were, were kept on the wing. So the prisoners were shut down. We then got told after visits, after, you know, um, wherever you're working, you go back to Kentwing and we'll feed the wing. And because it were peed off, we were obviously doing a, what we would call a controlled unlock, so we weren't getting too many prisoners out at a time. And as I'd unlocked, I think it was six cells, this prisoner started counting the members of staff on there. Goes, and I remember it being a comment like, yeah, they're meant to be short-staffed. Look how many screws are on here. And I went, hang on a minute, mate. We've all been cross-deployed elsewhere for the afternoon. We've only just come back on to get you your food. That then turned into an argument between me and him. Then his son, who was there with him, got involved. So then I've got this guy and his son arguing with me. And then other prisoners who were obviously being unlocked started getting involved. And I remember looking up and I was, my arse is going now. I'm thinking, I've got a lot of prisoners in front of me who are pissed off. I'm on my own. Where's everybody else? And I looked up and the staff hanging over the railings, just watching. Oh, for God's sake. And I thought, if this goes Pete Tong, I've had it, you know, these guys are meant to be coming down and standing on my shoulder and helping me. And there was one member of staff who saw it at the far end of the landing. And I remember seeing him walking towards me thinking, thank God for that. And he's the only member of staff who stood on my shoulder and backed me up. And the following day I went, I'm not staying in this prison any longer. And I, um, I, I spoke to my boss, my, my PO at the time and said, look, I'm not happy here. I've been here six months. I don't like the jail. I don't like the way it's run. I'm not comfortable. I just, I need to move. Uh, and I got a transfer to Swellside, which I suppose could be one of the worst prisons in the country you could go to. 
<laughs> what part of the country is that? It's in the Isle of Sheppey in Kent. So from Maidstone, it's it's not far. It's literally 20-minute car journey. Um, it suited me because I lived in Folkestone. I think it was a 52-mile journey from house to, to, to work. Um, Swaleside, probably be one of the best jails I've worked in. Although it was, it was a nasty jail, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it there. Okay. okay. I, I started there. I worked in the segregation unit. And we just had a good team of staff on there. Everybody backed each other up. Everybody looked after each other. You know, if something happened, you knew your colleague was there. Um, the seg was an interesting place to work anyway, because to me... Um, Swell size, like a dispersal, but without the cat A sort of insignia over the sort of door. You know, they a lot of them are ex category A prisoners. They've come from the dispersal system. Certainly, when I was there, sort of early two thousands, if you weren't doing sort of twenty years, you were nobody. There was sentences like you wouldn't believe in that place, you know. But the place ran. The place ran. You know, we had I think at the time about six wings. Um, and it was okay. It was okay. Uh, but it was one of the jails where things sort of ca- things carried on on a day to day basis. But when it went, you knew about it. What it was the was first time it jails. went? Um, well, one of the, what happened a lot at Swellside was we used to get what we called a lot of burnouts. So if a prisoner was placed on a particular wing, A wing used to be the main wing. So if you put a prisoner on A wing, I believe it was a two's landing, middle spur, and he was white. Within five minutes of being located on that cell, his cell would be up in flames. What? So what would happen is he'd get located, and then the prisoners on the wing would say, the govs want to see you in the office. He'd bimble off, and while he was there, they'd go in there and set light to his cell. And that happened all the time. Burnouts were happening all the time. And it was a... Bit of a, a big gang culture on A wing at the time. Yeah, I was going to ask who ran that wing in yeah, particular. A, a lot of a lot of uh, gangs on there. This is when I started to notice gangs within the service. I've never really come across them before, and this is when it started to become apparent. And people becoming involved in groups, and they stuck together. And like I said, when things went, it went because they all got involved in it all. That's a burnout. Was a fraggle out. <laughs> a fraggle out was me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd done my time on, uh, I was in the SEG for, I did about 18 months down there. Um, if you talk about the SEG first, give you an idea. Um, I mean, the Wednesday used to be canteen day. So every Wednesday afternoon, the jail would be closed down. I mean, Swaleside used to run workshops where guys could go to work nine o'clock in the morning and work till five o'clock, come back and they're doing a good wage as well. They were getting 85, 90 pound a week working, you know, where in other jails, you'd probably get, you know, £10 if you're lucky working in the kitchens for a week. They were earning some good money. But Wednesdays, they would close the prisons down and every wing would issue the canteen. Every Wednesday lunchtime, 100% guaranteed, working down the seg, we would get told we've got a prisoner coming down. So, kilo one, you've got one en route to you from A wing, B wing, C wing, whatever. And we'd get somebody who would turn up and it'd be a prisoner who's got himself into debt on the wing because it's canteen day, he hasn't got the means to pay back his debts. So he's going to refuse to bang up. He's going to be brought down to the segregation unit. And this happened every single Wednesday. It got to the stage, it happened that often. We had no cells in the seg to put people in. Because there were so many down there on their own protection. Because 
didn't have a VPU. They had to get shipped out. And the governor at that time was adamant, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not shipping these, you know, these people get themselves in a debt. They deal with it. And it got to the stage where we were literally full. We had no spaces in the seg. If they ship them out, does it follow to the next prison, the debt? It does, yes, it does. I, 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 um, I do remember actually going back to Maystone. There was a, J, uh, there was a guy there, and he was a bit of a, a bit of a boy, let's say, and he got himself into a debt on a previous sentence, and I think it was about eight years earlier. And somebody had landed in Maidstone who he had owed eight years earlier, and this guy was yeah. He started self-harming and he started doing whatever he could to get himself shipped out of that place because he knew he was going to have some serious issues. And in uh, Swell Size, you also, there was an incident where a prisoner nearly got his throat cut. Yeah, this was around about, I think it was New Year time. Um, at Swell Side, they could, prisoners can cook their own food. So every wing had a kitchen. So on a Wednesday, like I said, we'd, we'd do canteen. And I think on a Thursday or Tuesday, I can't remember one of the two, they would get um, fruit and veg. So we'd have freezers on the wing where they would be full of meat, steaks, poultry, you name it. Um, and they could cook their own food. And some of the food these guys used to produce was phenomenal. But obviously, you know, you've got one cooker, you've got 120 prisoners, um, I believe there was an argument one day down in the um, self, you know, the self cook area, where a guy had been hogging the, the oven. Um, another guy had come along. I think it was a Colombian guy doing a long time as well. I think it was a drugs drugs guy, and he basically had a glass. I think it was a coffee jar, and he smashed it and actually went to cut the um, the other guy's throat. As he's put his hand up, he's obviously deflected, and he's it, literally taken his thumb off him. So his thumb was hanging on, and they did say that if it hadn't been for his hand going up, he would definitely have lost his uh, lost his life due to the fact that the uh, the glass would have got his, his jugular. And like I said, you know, Swells have won those jails. If it went, it went. You know, it really did blow. Because um, most of them were lifers. A lot of them, yeah, doing a lot, a lot of long sentences, a lot of lifers in there. You know what they got. You know what have these people got to lose. What did the Millennium Dome boat driver do? He was down the seg. Um, I can't <laughs> remember why he was down there. To be honest with you, I'm not sure if if he'd um, grasped on somebody or he was just there. Um, what was his actual crime? Yeah, he was the guy. You know when the Millennium Dome had that big diamond on display. Yes. When it first, well, we're going back about 2000, aren't we? I believe now. Um, and this gang had decided they were going to rob this diamond. I think it was the biggest diamond in the world. And they'd, um, yeah. the police had got wind of this. And so they'd actually swapped it for a fake diamond. Um, but they'd, they'd got a digger truck and they'd gone in and apparently bust down the, uh, gates into the Millennium Dome and got in there and they took the, uh, they took the display down and I think managed to get it. Ooh. And the police were watching them. The police knew it was all happening. And the, the guy who was actually, um, his job was to, they were going to steal the diamond, go to the river's edge, jump on this boat, and he was going to whisk them off to wherever. And he was a guy who was the, obviously, driver of the boat. And he obviously got, I think he got about six or seven years for it. I don't think he got as, as much time as, like, the main the main guys did. But he was down the seg. Uh, and I said, I don't know why he was there, if he was just in transit from one jail to another, going elsewhere. But he sort of turned up one day, and then he was gone a few days later. But, yeah, that was... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to skip forward to the story here. My major cock-up. Mm. 
second one of my career. Oh. Um, like I said, in, in Swellside, the guys could work down the workshops and earn some really good money. So they'd go nine o'clock in the morning, like I said, come back around about sort of five o'clock in the evening. Um, so what would happen was in the morning, you'd unlock the wing, they'd come out for half an hour, have um, showers, phone calls, do do what, wheeling, dealing, I suppose, do whatever they do. And then they'd call free flow to work and everybody would go off to their work areas. And once everybody had gone to work, they'd cease free flow. We would bang anybody left up on the wings, all the cleaners, all the survey workers would be banged up. And then you would do a account and make sure everybody's accounted for. So that all happened. No issues. Everything was great. Um, I was the movements officer on, on the day. So I had a big board in front of me. And every time somebody came on the wing, I'd take them on or I'd take them off. But I was also running a, a landing as well. So as well as being movements, I'm, I'm trying to run a landing. So I'm sort of doing two jobs, um, which isn't easy. And the gym, um, the gym guys had turned up to take a load of our lads off to go to the gym. And as they were taking the gym guys off, one of my colleagues said to me, I'm just taking Smithy off. Um, he's on an escort. Yeah, no problem. Totally forgot all about it. Come lunchtime, all the prisoners have come back from, um, education, the gym, the ones who worked in the workshops, as I said, they were still out there. So they'd come back from wherever they worked. And we'd feed them all and then we'd do a roll count. And the roll was wrong. And it had been identified, um, there was definitely a prisoner missing, but nobody could find out where he was. So everybody was told to recount the wings again. So the guys in the workshops were obviously counting their prisoners in the workshops. Guys on the wing were counting their prisoners on the wing. The roll was still incorrect. And this had gone on for half an hour they decided to what they will call um, deploy fixed posts so fixed posts are members of staff who have to stand in certain areas of the perimeter of the jail you know within within the wall so you'd be in sight of another colleague but there would be eyes all around the jail that way they would you know to help uh, prevent escapes and then staff were then told, say, if you were on A-wing, you had to go to B-wing and count B-wing. B-wing staff had to go on a wing count A-wing. We were all sort of cross-deployed to count different wings, and the row was still wrong. So they're getting fed up at this now, and they're thinking, we've, we've lost one. So the decision was made to send all the prisoners back from the workshops, and they would put a PO on every door with the movements officer, ticking them off. So he'd, he'd be making sure I didn't miss anybody. And it was a good friend of mine at the time. And I got on well with this guy, really got on well with him. And I was saying to him, bloody hell, somebody's in, a, in trouble for this one, aren't they? He went, you bet it. He said, we've never had to close the workshops ever. You know, we've all, yeah, the role was always wrong every now and again, but we've always managed to sort it out. This has gone on for about an hour and a half now. Decisions being made by the governor and governor to close the workshops, which then is costing the prison money because obviously the stuff they're manufacturing is funds towards the jail. They've had to send every prisoner back to the wing. And he was saying to me, yes, there's, uh, there's going to be somebody's head on a pole on this one. Anyway, as we as we were chatting away, they started doing free flow back from the from the workshop. So the guy started bimbling back. And he said to me, says, how many is it you've got to come back? I went, oh, I've, got, I've got 19. And then my essay went, no, 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 you've got 20. Don't forget, you've got, uh, you've got 18. He says, because you've got Smithy has gone out on an escort. 
and then suddenly the penny had dropped. I'd marked him off of being in the workshops when he wasn't even in the jail. He was off my roll. I shouldn't even have accounted for this guy. He was gone. I should have told somebody, yeah, he's off my roll, blah, blah, blah. I totally didn't. I, I, it was a mistake. That's <laughs> all I can say. But they closed all the wings down and, and you know, as I said, uh, all the workshops were closed down and everybody had to come back and, uh, yeah, the governor was not a happy man. But I will be honest, I put my hands up and I said, I made a mistake. What more can I do? I can't lie. It was my mistake. Hands went up, but it was embarrassing. So, but my head, yeah, my head was uh, was ready to be put on a swipe for that one. So, <laughs> so were you called into Tornado Squad action on New Year's Eve? I didn't know. Um, I was I was really gutted about that because um, the time I worked in the SEG, there was two tornado shouts to Dover. And I'd missed both of them. I didn't get a call. And oh. I remember sort of voicing my opinion because it seemed to be the same people all the time got the calls, you know. It was a, a bit of a boys club. And I, I, I yeah, I, I was vocal. I wasn't happy about this. Um, so for two nights running, the same people had gone off and done a, a shout at Dover. And then a couple of months later, Rochester had blown up. And I was on an escort at the time. I had a prisoner in, I think it was uh, Gillingham Hospital. It was having some routine treatment done. And as I'd come back to the jail, we got back to the jail around about eight o'clock. One of my mates said to me, get upstairs. They've just shouted tornado for Rochester. Rochester jail's gone up and they had a big riot there. I've gone running upstairs to the room where all the equipment is and everyone's getting changed into their gear. And I went, can I come? He went, no, I've got everybody. And the guy who was in charge of it basically said to me, just go home. Oh. We don't need you. But I'm here. I don't need you. Piss off. You know, and that was literally how it was. I was gutted. I was absolutely fuming. So, you know, tail between my legs, I've gone off. Um, the following day, the the real um, salt in the wounds was it turned out one of the members of staff who said he was on his way couldn't make it and they were actually one short. Oh, no. So they had to take somebody off nights who was working in the prison to go off and do the shout. So no, I never, uh, I never got, I never got called on that one. But anyway, um, later on that year, as I said, New Year's Eve, they decided they were going to have a bit of bit of fun with staff. And again, it was the days where we used to bang up at sort of seven thirty, eight o'clock in the evening. And what had happened was um, prisoners had gone into one of the TV rooms, pressed the fire alarm. Staff had obviously then had to. Or in fact, I think a cell might have been put on fire. Probably a, a cell had been put on fire. I don't know. But sta- uh, staff had put all the prisoners into like the TV rooms on on, on the landings and stuff. And then they decided they weren't going to come out. Oh. And uh, this started, as I said, around about eight o'clock in the evening. And I think it got resolved about four o'clock in the morning where every prisoner again had then um, surrendered and obviously made their way back to uh, to their cells. But you think you've got to get guys down from Oxford who are like the national instructor who've got to come down and overview it all. You've got staff from other jails who've got to get to their jail, get their equipment, then get to swell side. Then they're going to be briefed. And there's going to have to be um, plans made up and how they're going to deal with a situation. If it's a surrender situation, how we're going to deal with it. If it's an intervention, how we're going to deal with it. So it takes time. So yeah, four, five o'clock in the morning, it got resolved. But there was a copycat incident four days later. But four days, days later, later so. that's right. Um, I was in security at the time and we got some more intelligence that it was going to happen again four days later. So I, I said to uh, the guy who was running this sort of CNR at the time, I said, right, I'm not missing out on this one. 
<laughs> I'm going to be involved. And I was finishing work at five o'clock that day and I stayed on. And I stayed on and I was like, this better happen because I've been, you know, I, I was just, I just wanted to sort of, I don't know, <laughs> get my cherry. I wanted to get involved in one of these incidents. <laughs> and we had four prisoners. Uh, it was only four. Four prisoners had done exactly the same as what had happened four days earlier on uh, New Year's Eve. They decided they'd set a cell on fire, gone into the TV room. I'm assuming they expected everybody else to follow suit and for another incident, like before it happened, but it was only four of them got involved. So yeah, it was it was done within the jail. You know, rather than having to call teams in elsewhere, we got we we managed it within the, the uh, confines of the prison. So obviously, we got enough staff together. We all came. I was there, as I said already. Stuff came in, and then we got kitted up and went into the uh, into the TV room, took these guys out. And remember, we had to have the big red key. You know, use mm. take the door down. They were trying to get the door down to the TV room with this big red key and they weigh a ton. And what they'd done, they placed all the chairs up against the, the door. But the reason we couldn't get the door off was because it was like a fire door. So obviously it had a spring at the top and as the door opened, it shuts itself. And we had to literally get the key, put it through a window to distract the prisoners because obviously they were behind all the chairs and that's trying to stop us coming mm-hmm. through the door. As we've gone through the, the glass and that has shattered, they've run to the back of the room, and that way we've actually managed to get into the cell, uh, into the uh, TV room and actually uh, take control of the prisoners. But that was the best I ever got <laughs> when, it, when it came to uh, tornado. Mm. And yeah, there was corruption at Swellside, wasn't mm. there? A bit more than um, yeah, there was. Um, when I first started there, we had an officer from Liverpool, and he was a good lad actually. I did. Did like him. Um, he suddenly left after about 18 months. It turned out that he had been literally recruited into the prison service to be involved in, in, in some, he's obviously involved in some sort of gang, didn't have a, a conviction, which entitled him obviously to apply for the prison service and he was successful and got in and he was doing his, his wheeling and dealings that way. So anyway, he, he left, off he went. Um, out of the blue and I don't even know if they followed it up afterwards I'm not really sure we had a member of staff who'd been transferred in from the scrubs he got himself involved with some Turkish guys on one of the wings so he was bringing a lot of drugs in for these prisoners as well and the worst one was the deputy governor his son um, was an OSG at the time so well when I first met him he was an OSG an operational support grade so they were the guys like I was as an auxiliary. They'd support the officers. Um, and I remember saying to this guy one day, why don't you become an officer? Yeah, I'm going for the process now. It's going to happen. You know, I'm just waiting for my call states, blah, blah, blah. He became an officer. And I'd actually left Swellside at this point. I'd gone back to high down. And it turned out that um, they were watching a member of staff on one of the wings because they knew he was bringing a lot of, a lot of drugs in and a lot of mobile phones into the prison. But because he'd walked in with the deputy governor's son, they couldn't search one and not the other because obviously it would give it away that they were targeting this particular member of staff. So they've asked them both to go into the security department, open their bags up, check their um, belongings. The guy they were watching had absolutely nothing on him whatsoever. The deputy governor's son had a mobile phone and cannabis. Oh, <laughs> And it was all, it was it literally, that it was, that's how unlucky for him, I suppose, 
he got found. Wow. Well, from what, wow. Yeah, I mean, his dad, I mean, he wasn't a popular guy with that governor at the time. I mean, I, I again, I, I didn't have an issue with him. I always got on well with him. I felt so sorry for this guy, you know. His own son, he was the deputy governor of a prison and his own son had been done for trafficking. And I think he got about two years for it, if I remember right. Mm, right so. This Mitchell guy doesn't sound like yeah, a nice Mitchell person. Kai, Mitchell Kai, yeah. Um, when I was in security, because when I left um, the SEG, I, I got put into security. Um, we had a guy who kept putting a lot of notes in boxes. And it was highlighted this Mitchell Kai was the guy who was doing it. So he was then registered as a um, uh, as a paid informant as such. He didn't actually get paid, but he was known within the security department that he was an informant. Uh, so procedures would be put in place. So um, if he wanted to, you know, you, you had handlers and I was his handler and one of my oppos would be like the other handler. So if he had any information he wanted to give, he would ask somebody on his wing who was again involved in what was going on to contact me. I would then arrange for him to meet me in the chapel, for instance, or healthcare or somewhere out of the way. So he would leave the wing. You know, people might thought he was off for a legal visit and then he would come and meet me. And then I would, with a colleague, obviously, I'd never do it on my own. We would take the information off him. And it turns out with Mitchell Key, he wanted to be seen as being important. I don't think anything he ever gave us ever came to fruition but he wanted to feel he was he was important now his crime was horrific he'd basically murdered his wife and he had a couple of kids at the time his wife had disappeared he'd killed her chopped her body up and placed her body parts around liverpool in different areas and i believe to this day her head has never been found but he wanted to be still important In, in his mind he wanted that, that importance, that control, I suppose. And uh, yeah. Does it ever come out why he'd done that? I just think he was a lunatic, mental. to be honest with you. I think, yeah, I think it was mental health issues, yeah. So by your first cock-up, you've got a couple here. <laughs> hot plate cock-up. Oh, yes, a hot plate cock-up, yeah. Um, when we used to do the food at um, Swellside, we always, always had an officer inside the servery area. So you were there to support your hot plate workers, your servery workers. So I would have the board and it would tell me the menus of everybody. So Joe Bloggs would, you know, you'd have a menu choice, one, two, three, four. So it could be fish, I don't know, fish, um, quiche, pie, whatever. So I'm stood with the board and as the guys are coming up, right, hello, Jonesy, uh, number two today. And I tick him off on the uh, on the menu board. And they'll be coming down. I said, no, Jones, uh, number four. I didn't order that. What is it? You've ordered, I don't know, you've ordered um, casserole. I didn't order casserole. Well, you've got it here, number four. It's yours. Go on, jog on. And this went on and went on. And literally every prisoner who came to the surgery was saying to me, I didn't order this. Well, you've got it. It's what you've got. Now, one thing you don't do is mess with prisoners' food. That is one thing, you know, visits, post, certainly their canteen and their food you do not mess with. And I'm thinking, the kitchen's obviously not checked my menu order or one of the survey guys has not checked, the, he hasn't done his count correctly because everybody's coming to me saying, I didn't order that. And then I got a tap on the shoulder and it was one of the survey workers who said, Gov, can I have a word with you, please? I'm like, of course you can. We sort of went out of sort of earshot and he went, 
you've got the menu for dinner, not lunch. And what I was doing, I was dishing out, I was, I had the menu for that evening meals, meal choices, and not the lunchtime. And then it was like, shit, I can't now stop because I am going to run out. And I had to literally blag my way through everybody. <laughs> well, obviously the kitchen made a mess up. And, so, and I'll tell you something, it cost me some Mars bars for my survey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so your next stop is High Down. Yes, Sean, I, I go back to High Down. Um, absolutely love Swirlside, as I said. Um, again, I, I put it on, on my ex-wife at the time. She, we, We'd been away for, what, five, six years at this stage, and she wanted to move back to... Uh, to where she came from in order shop. So I asked to go back to uh, to High Down and I think to be honest with you, with a cock up I made with the uh with a workshop, I don't think they were too sorry to see me go, to be honest with you. So I uh, yeah I got I got I got my uh, my transfer. I went back to High Down and I would honestly say it was not the high down I left sort of six or seven years earlier. It had totally changed. It wasn't Cat A anymore. Um, so obviously the staffing numbers were reduced a lot. A lot of the staff I worked with had gone. Still a lot of the lads there from when I knew, you know, back in sort of late 90s, early 2000s. But there was a lot of new staff there. But the processes were totally different where you would be given a spur to work on. You would work on that spur. You didn't come off that spur unless you had to like go to the toilet or maybe make an important phone call for something. You stayed on your spur. It changed the fact that staff would go onto the spur and not prisoners and then come off. And they would literally supervise association periods on the other side of the the bars, which was, yeah, it was totally, totally different. Um, where this is creeped in, I don't know. But There was an incident on the first day, wasn't there? Yes, the first day um, I was still in my induction <laughs> training. Although I'd worked there before, you still have to go for the, the week's um, induction where you see people from health and safety and whatever else you know you get issued this that and the other um i'd gone on to house block three which was my unit i was going to be working on and um, i'd gone on there to sort of say hello to the po at the time which somebody i worked with many years earlier who was my so and i've gone on to see this uh this po and as we're chatting away there's a phone call for me like who knows i'm here and i picked it up and it was obviously the training department saying just so you know at uh, two o'clock this afternoon, we want you to pop over to uh, the works department where you're going to have health and safety um, interview or chat, whatever you call it. And as we were making, as I'm on the phone, the alarm bell had gone off and I'm like, I've got to go. We've got an alarm bell here. I've put the phone down and somebody, when it's on the exercise yard and I've ran down a stairwell across like the center on the ones onto the exercise yard. And as I run on the yard, the yards are full of prisoners. You've got member staff who's literally doing this with a prisoner in front of him throwing punches. Uh, there was a, a member of staff at the other side of the gate who's like, can't come onto the yard and can't assist because obviously he can't breach that um, that barrier, so to speak. And there was another member of staff stood in the corner just watching, which, you know, what happened to me, as I said at the beginning of the uh the cast, but uh, yeah, me and another guy had ran on and literally just jumped on this prisoner, managed to restrain him. And it was quite funny because although people had seen me over a period of two or three days while I was doing my induction week, they thought I was a brand new officer again. 
and they were like, you know, the word was going around this new officer, you know, his first couple of days in the job, he was, he was already rolling around the floor with prisoners. Then it all obviously came out that I'd been there before. And I think at this stage, I got about nine or 10 years in the job, I think, you know, but yeah, the very Something first day I was there, I was, I was shunned again. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, um, words of guidance regarding canteen to a member of staff. Yeah. Well, this member of staff went on actually to, um, to leave the job for being corrupt. But she had an issue with one prisoner. And I don't, want, don't know what the issue really was. Um, but she said to me one day, she says, I'm not going to give him his canteen. He'd been, uh, I think he'd been out in a, an escort during the day. So when the canteen had been issued, he wasn't in the jail. So we had it in an office. And this member staff had a real issue with this guy. And she says to me, I'm not giving him his canteen. I says, well, why? I don't like him. I says, so you're telling me you're not going to give this guy's canteen because you don't like him. Yeah. I said, it doesn't work that way. Who, would you, who do you think you are telling me? Now, again, when I joined, you kept your eyes open, your ears open, you kept your mouth shut. It's changed now. People are starting to say, hang on a minute, I've been in the job six months. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing as a prison officer. You can't tell me what to do. And this has started to get a lot like this now. Um, I went, no. I said, I'll tell you now, this guy is going to refuse to bang up because he's already told me, Mr. T, if I don't get my canteen, I ain't going to bang up. I said, so basically, what's going to happen then? Well, I don't know. I said, he'll end up going down the segregation unit. We'll have to nick him because he's refused to bang up. Tomorrow morning, he'll be on an adjudication and the governor's going to say to him, right, Mr. Jones, why didn't you bang up last night? And he's going to turn around and say, because Miss blah, blah, blah wouldn't give me my canteen. I said, how's that going to look on you? Oh, okay, I see what you mean. So obviously then she'd, uh, yeah, had a second thought. And, but at the end of the day, Sean, this was a guy, this was his property. He'd bought a canteen. It's not something we've given him. It was his. But this is what people were like. They thought they was, it was like a power thing with them. You know, I can do what I want and I'm going to do it. And now you pick your battles and this was one battle you were definitely going to lose if it had gone any further. Oh yeah, the canteen can be a lifesaver, can't it? So you became a control and restraint instructor. Yeah, one of my uh, goals when I first joined the job, like I said, was to get on the tornado. And then I wanted to do, um, CNR control and restraint is what we do to um, deal with violent prisoners or mentally ill, mentally Ill prisoners as well. Um, and... It's a very, very intensive course you have to do. You need to know like the CNR manual inside out. So not only do you need to know the manual inside out, you need to have the skills to then teach that as well. Um, and it is a very, very hard course. You spend two weeks up in Oxfordshire or in Kidlington, depending where you do um, the training. I think now it's three weeks. I think it's actually gone on for an extra week now. Um, and yeah, they'll, they will teach you or they will support you in becoming an instructor but you need to know how to do cnr first uh and it was just something i always wanted to try and do i i i I was getting a bit bored in the job every day was the same i was on the landings i was doing this i was doing that and i just wanted something to give me a bit of a break and that break was to be in a classroom maybe once a week teaching staff cnr um i did the course i found it very 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 difficult i will be honest with you i mean I think at the beginning or at the end of the first week, the national instructor pulled me in and basically said, you know, you've got a weekend off 
get your ass sorted out because if you continue the way you're going to go, you ain't going to get through this course. You know, that gave me the bullet up the ass to sort of get my head in my books again because I thought I knew it all and I didn't know everything. So I went back on the Monday, um, cracked on, I think the Wednesday before my assessment, because at the end of the course, you get assessed on your teaching abilities and obviously your knowledge of CNR. And if you pass that, then obviously then you'll get signed off as being an instructor. And I think it was a Wednesday before my um, assessment. I literally felt like getting in my car and driving home. That's how stressful this course had been. But thankfully, I stuck it out. And yeah, come the Friday, I got the good news that I'd passed it. And then they moved you to reception. And then I got moved to reception, yeah. So reception, um, absolutely... Again, I liked reception. I liked, I thought I'd done a, you know, I'd done a bit of time on the landings. It was great. Never worked in reception. Another area I thought something I'd like to get my teeth stuck into. Long hours. You know, we'll we, be there at 6.30 in the morning, getting the guys ready to go to court that morning. Um, we might not be leaving until 10 o'clock at night. You know, it could be very, very long hours. But reception, again, was an area where you were busy, but when you were busy, you did not stop. But then there was a lot of downtime as well. So mid-morning, you might have a little bit of time where you could get on and get your, say, your personal admin sorted out, get a few emails sent off to people or chase up a few queries, you know. But yeah, reception was a very um, good area to work in. Is that where the taxi rapist arrived That's at? right. I can't recall what his, um, his name was. All right, so... Um, it was the taxi rapist came in then. That's a famous he, case, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah. He, um, I think his surname was Warboys. Um, I believe he'd been driving around London in his taxi as a, as a qualified London taxi driver. It was it a black cab situation? Black cabs, that's right. And, uh, he'd pick people up and say to them, Oh, I've won the lottery or I've won a, a load of money. Um, let's go celebrate. Let's go celebrate. And he'd have one. in the back of his, uh, his cab, he'd have a bottle of champagne. Obviously he'd laced it with, with something. And then <sighs> the, uh, the unwilling participant would obviously then be comatose and he would carry out a rape. And I believe <sighs> this guy, had done it to absolutely loads and loads and loads of people. Uh, they caught him. Obviously, he um, went to one of the courts local to what Highdown dealt with, and he came to us, but he was already what we call a pot a pot A, so he was potentially going to be a cat A prisoner. So um, I remember him coming through reception, and one of my mates said to me, oh, my, that's just reminding me, I need to get my lottery tickets on. And there's all sorts of like innuendos from staff, and I think in a way they were trying to goad him a little bit into sort of reacting. But he came in and I'll be honest with you, he had his head down. He never said a word to anybody unless he was spoken to. He went through the procedures of being reception, you know, come in, signed whatever paperwork he had to do, complied with everything he had to do. He was whisked off to the segregation unit. And I believe within 24 hours, he was in Belmarsh as a category A prisoner. And then you had some high uh Profile prisoner cases, including a Levi Belfield. Yeah. Um, while I was in um, reception, yep. um, we started doing what we call self-rostering. So we could literally choose our own shifts. As long as we fulfilled the hours we had to work, which was obviously 39 hours a week, and we had to do a minimum of, of, I think, two early mornings and two evening duties, we could literally pick and choose what we worked as long as our hours made up to 39. So what I did, I used to just come in and get all my hours done within about four and a half days. I think I did. I do like a lot of half sixes till 10 o'clock at nights. And I'd do that for say four days or five days. And then I'd have five days off. 
at the time, um, the service was struggling a lot with uh, um, supplying escorts to the old bailiff from Belmarsh Prison. So they were sending emails out to staff saying, you know, if you've got a day off, you fancy doing a little bit of overtime, you know, we're willing to give you escorts to do. And I put my name down for it, got a phone call, asked, you know, when's your, your rest days? Gave my rest days to the guy in their detail office. He'd phone me up and say, right, can you come in tomorrow? We've got an escort going to the Bailey. Um, when I was there, we had Levi Belfield was going through his um, his trial. He um, was convicted of murdering, I think it was two females. And then later on, it came out that he'd actually killed a, uh, a girl called Millie Dowler. They now believe, and going back to previous story I told you when I talked about Michael Stone his name's come into the frame and they believe Levi Belfi now may be responsible for the and Rus- uh, the Russell murders in Kent and that Stone is actually um, innocent but you- I think that's still going through so they are reopening the case they, I, I believe the police are still looking into it yes yes okay. but apparently his um, his MO is very very similar so we interviewed one of the main cops on the Levi Belfi yeah. case yeah yeah. And then the Securitas robbers. Yeah, um, back in oh two thousand seven, maybe six, seven. Um, I think it was in Tunbridge Wells. There was a big um, money place where they had you know, millions, and millions, and millions of pounds, and uh, this this gang had gone in there, and they basically, I think, they got away with some like forty three million pounds worth what? of money. They had so much money, they had to leave a lot of it behind. And they were loading literally bins full of cash. Transport it. Yeah, they couldn't they couldn't get away with it. Or, you know, um there was an inside man, obviously he was involved in it. He was a, a B cat prisoner. There was a couple of them, I believe, were just standard risk cat A's and then the rest of them were high risk cat A's. And that trial, I think I'd been on that about three or four times. Um I remember the manager um, of the safe deposit box place, whatever you call it. His wife was in, um, I think his wife was in the dock and a lot of the information didn't hit the papers, obviously. But one of the things the gang had done apparently was held a gun to her son's head while she was blindfolded and said, if you don't tell us, we'll get your husband to meet us where we say we're going to blow your son away. And, you know, they were quite a, br- a brutal gang of uh, gang of guys but they eventually got uh, I think it was 15 years IPP mm. um, I thought they'd never get out if I'm honest with you because obviously a lot of the money's never been recovered but I was watching a podcast fairly recently and apparently one of the guys actually has been released and he's now back in I think Albania so I think some of them still are inside but yeah, one of them has actually actually been released. And you said much of the money hasn't been A recovered. lot of the money apparently has never been recovered, yeah. Oh. <laughs> so um, the next high profile is Teacher Courts. Killed his yeah, girlfriend Coots, in Sussex. Um, again, this was, um, at the time it was in the papers. Um, he was a teacher, uh, I believe he was a teacher, music teacher possibly. His partner actually um, worked in a school as well. And he had this big, sexual fetish basically and he ended up murdering her and, and he was quite high profile at the time in the papers um, so he was a category a prisoner so obviously he had the 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 appropriate security to escort him to and from the uh the bailey but he did get a 25 year wreck as well are you saying he murdered her in the act of 
the fetish. I think fetish, it was. Yeah. I'm not sure, hundred percent now, if that was maybe um, the story he gave. But I think he, yeah, he strangled her, and I think he said it was in the act of. Oh, so that was his, yeah. Yeah. That was his yeah. cover story. <laughs> yeah. Um, level two escorts. Yeah, level two escort would be like the security task guys, uh, Levi Belfield, because with your category A's, you've got three uh, levels. You've got standard risk cate, you've got high risk cate, and then you've got exceptional. And the exceptional risks, I don't think there's many in the country, if there are at all now. I, I know, um, I think a lot of the IRA used to be exceptional risk. Um, I believe one of your old podcasters um, was an exceptional risk prisoner. Shane Taylor. Mm, possibly Shane. He was in the seven most dangerous in the prisoners in possibly the country by the Home Office. Yeah, no, the one I'm thinking is um, he, did, he did 22 years for a murder he said he didn't commit. Um, Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane, that's right. Yeah, I believe Kevin um, was an exceptional risk uh, category A. What about Bronson? Do you know? I don't know. Mm. I'm not sure what he is. I know he's he certainly is Cate, but what level? I'm not sure. But certainly with the high risk um, Cate's, when they get transported to and from court, or if they get transferred to another jail, there would be what we would call a level two a level two transfer, which meant you would have armed response vehicles in front of the uh, the escort. You'd had certainly two or three armed response vehicles behind the uh, the prison van. And a lot of times you'd also have a helicopter as well. And it would be, you know, you think the money's spent on these uh, these escorts. And the minute you left court or you left the prison, that van did not stop. Mm. You know, you'd be going the wrong way up dual carriageways and the wrong way up roads. That vehicle would not stop <laughs> until it got to its destination. <laughs> but it was a buzz as well because you have to get in there. You have to put a flat jacket on it as well, just in case, you know, you do get attacked. But it is, a, it is quite a buzz, yeah. So, do, um, on sorry, you were doing nights in High Down and there was an escape on Bedwatch. Yeah, I, I um, after being in reception for about, I don't know, I think two years, I was temporarily promoted. And they asked me to do nights. So my job was to do week on, week off on nights, which sounded good at the time because I was going to be working 19 weeks a year with my leave and that, you know. Um, and we had a prisoner, um, he was quite ill. Um, I think he'd had a, a bit of a appendicitis or something like this. And he, he ended up having to go out to hospital middle of the night. So I'd obviously had to get the escort or Jack Turpin. We, we had a, I think we had an ambulance come in to take him out and two staff obviously, um, secured to him. He got taken out to hospital. Um, I'd made a few phone calls. I think early morning asking for staff who, who were off to um, come in and do a bed watch and a couple of my mates had volunteered to do it and I remember they came to see me and I said right you know this is a score gave them a bit of history on the prisoner the, the, the risk assessment let's say and I said you'll have no problems with this guy apparently he's been good as gold all night long not a problem they've obviously gone out to the uh, to the hospital taken over from the night staff taken over the escort at some point in the morning, I think it was only a couple of hours later, the prisoner said to these staff, can I go to the toilet, please? Now, when procedures are followed through, a prisoner will be put on what we call a closeting chain. So it will be a cuff with a long chain, which is then attached to another cuff, which is attached to the other officer. In Epsom General Hospital, you have a few toilets where when you open the door, 
you've got 10, maybe 15 foot, like a corridor to where the toilet is. The chain will not reach. Now, most people would say, right, we'll find a toilet where the chain will reach. So obviously, um, there's no issues there. But these staff decided, well, we'll be okay. They took the cuff off him. He's gone into the cubicle, shut the door. They stood outside the door, obviously letting him do his business in privacy. He's obviously got the opportunity, opened the window, and off he went. <laughs> I think he was gone for about three weeks, and then he handed himself in. Oh, wow. That's quite long. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Give me the gills. Um, and then another exciting night for ambulances on one yeah, shift. Yeah. I turned up this particular evening and we had courts still coming in. So it was, just, you know, um, I think I used to sort of turn up at eight o'clock in the evening and we got told there was some late buses and late buses could be anything from 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. You're not going to expect your reception staff to stay on. And it, to be fair, we actually got to the stage where it was expected of them so often to stay on late that they went, no. Off shift finishes at nine o'clock. We're going home at nine o'clock. And to be fair, you can't blame the guys for doing it, you know. So I was down in the um, in the reception um, dealing with late um, receptions coming in, and then I had a nurse tap me on the shoulder and said, "I've got to send this particular prisoner out to um, hospital because of this prisoner's reputation." I had to send three members of staff. Now, bearing in mind. When on nights, you don't have a lot of officers. They're like your response if anything goes wrong, but they're also there, yes, to man the escorts if you need to send somebody out to hospital. So before my shifts even really started, I've lost three members of staff. Anyway, I believe I was processing prisoners at about midnight. managed to get them all uh, processed and onto the induction wing. I think within an hour of me doing that, so around about one o'clock in the morning, I then had to call, or the nurses had to call a blue light for somebody having chest pains. The ambulance turned up. They then said I had to obviously send this guy out to hospital. So I've now lost another two members of staff. So one o'clock in the morning, half past one in the morning, I'm now down to, you know, I've lost five members of staff. I think at three o'clock, we had another blue light emergency. So I then had to lose two more members of staff. And I was literally on my knees now. I've got, I've got nobody. I've had to move an officer from the control room, put him into, um, I believe it was like the Oscar II, my assistant role. I had to get an OSG from the control room or from the gate and put him in the healthcare so I could relieve the officer in healthcare to come out. I mean, most of the wings would be OSGs, but healthcare would always be an officer. You'd have an officer in comms. Uh, I had an officer in reception. I had to pull that member of staff out of reception because I just didn't have enough members of staff to deal with any incidents that happened. And I believe, I think it was about half past five, I got another ambulance um, blue light come in and I had to lose, again, two more. And at the end of the evening, by, okay, we're, we're talking six o'clock, staff are going to start coming into the jail very shortly. But it was myself, one other officer in the prison. Everybody else was out in hospital. Oh, wow. It was not a good night. And on top of that, I mean, the process is when you obviously, we call it night stay. So from 10 o'clock till six in the morning, if that gate has to open for any reason, you have to inform the governor. Well, my governor wouldn't answer his phone that night. Oh. So every time I was phoning up, I was getting no response. Oh, no. 
but that's what it is. <laughs> Two new wing open. Yeah, so during the time I was on nights, I started my nights off, I think, within about four months of me starting. I was um, running a jail with 730 prisoners, 750, let's say. Um, house blocks five and six had just been built. And then they got the green light to open. So over a period of time, they start obviously building, um, they start manning the uh, the new units. And at the end of it, I believe we were running on around about 1,200 prisoners. So I've taken off this this really high responsible job of running the jail with 750 prisoners, let's say. Within four months, I've got 1,200, you know, 1,200 prisoners I'm, I'm responsible for. Very daunting. Sounds <laughs> And I was only temporary promoted as well, so. <laughs> so, and uh, I presume this is in the same time frame at death in custody and house block frame. Yeah, um, I'd come in on my week off. So when you do nights, you do seven nights, then you get seven nights off. And the jail had been struggling with staff and they'd ask me if I'd come in and do an extra couple of shifts. And I thought, well, yeah, I'll do, I'll do it, not a problem. So my opposite number, so I would be Oscar one on nights when it was my nights and my opposite number, he would be Oscar one, obviously, for his set of nights, says to me, right, I'll be, you can be my assist. So you'd be my Oscar two. Um, but what happened was there'd been a death in custody that day. So basically a guy had been a lot to go on a visit and as he was walking down to the land, down the landing, apparently he had a heart attack and died. Now, any prison, uh, any death in prison, the police have obviously got to get involved. So it's not a quick sort of, we'll look at the scene and we'll talk to a few people and off we go. It's a time consuming issue you know they're, they're there for a long, long time now this happened early afternoon we've come on shift at eight o'clock and the police are still in the jail you know so they're still doing what they've got to do so my oppo said to me if you can take over the reins and run the prison i'm dealing with the police and then obviously once they've gone i'll take over the reins and we'll go back to like our normal roles and not a problem mate you know not a problem so i think it got to around about 11 o'clock um, that evening, the police had finished doing what they were doing. Um, my my uh, oppo had come along, took over the radio, so he was back to being like the night manager. I went down to the Oscar II role, his assistant. I got a call to go to one of the house blocks because a prisoner had cut his ear. So I've turned up. I'm still waiting for staff to arrive. So I've called on the radio. I'm on house block three. Can you get all available staff to come over and assist me? So you don't open any prison door unless you've got, you know, um, a good complement of staff there. So I'm talking to this chap saying like, what have you done? And what he'd actually done was cut the top of his ear off with a razor blade. And the top of his ear was actually hanging on. And I'm thinking, great. I haven't got a good stomach at most times. Mm. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to keep this guy calm. Yeah, I'm looking at a bloke with a big flappy ear, you know. So anyway, I'm trying to have a bit of banter with him and uh, I've got him to place the uh, razor blade under the door. So I've, I've taken it off him. So obviously there's no, um, no further risk of him harming himself any further. Eventually staff have all turned up. It's only been five, 10 minutes. If they've turned up, they were doing other jobs like maybe alarm bell testing and things like that. So we've opened the door. One of the nurses is there. And he's going, I can stitch that, not a problem. So rather than having to go out to hospital, which 99.9% of the time, the nurse will say, oh, we've got to send him out. This guy was like an ex-prison officer as well, actually. So he knew the school. 
Um, and he, he retrained as a nurse. He said, I can sew, sew that, not a problem. So great. So he's been taken off, uh, the prison's been taken off with the rest of the staff to the healthcare unit while Mickey's going to go and uh, suture his ear up. I've then stayed on the wing with another nurse um, to show the OSG um, how to fill in in that document. It's assessment, custody and care, teamwork, self-harm form, basically. Now, the, the OSG at the time had only been on, it was his very first shift, I believe, yeah, it was his very first shift live as a prison auxiliary, uh, prison OSG. He'd done the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday shadowing, and this was his Saturday nights. So he was lonesome, he's on his own. So I'm op- uh, opening this act document, explaining what we do. We spent about 20 minutes, half an hour, getting the paperwork sorted out. And as we've done that, we've, we've left. I'm going to go back to the orderly room now, have a sit down, cup of coffee, whatever. And then we got a call on the radio and it was like a gargled message on the radio. And I thought the message said, assistance required house block two. So I'm ready to run off to house block two, where the nurse who's with me went, no, that's where we've just come from, house block three. I'm running back on there. I've opened the um, doors onto the wing and I've seen the OSG stood. I said, when you go into the wing, you've got the three spurs and he stood at the end of the, um, the sort of D-spur, we called it. And he's disappeared. And I thought, what? where's he gone? What's going on? I haven't got a clue what's happening, you know. And I've run up to, I, I remember seeing him go to C-spur. So I've run up to the freeze landing on C-spur. And my, my logic is, if I'm at the height, I can see everything down below me. Yet if I'm on the twos level, I can't see above. So I've gone on the freeze looking down and I look and I see a cell door open. And I'm thinking, oh my God, he's gone in the cell on his own. So I've gone running down to the um, to the cell and he's got a guy and he's trying to hold him up and there's obviously a ligature around his neck and he's the ligature's tied to the bars. So I've obviously taken the weight as well and we've we've got what we call little fish knives and they're they're knives which help to cut um, ligatures but without actually damaging the, the person. Managed to cut the ligature down, we've got the prisoner down, got him laid on the floor, we've had to then start CPR. It turned out he he was dead. Oh. I mean, to be honest with you, we knew he was as soon as he walked, as soon as I went in the cell because of the smell. Mm. You know, once you die, your body just opens up, doesn't it? And the smell was horrific. Uh, Twenty one years of age, he was. Oh God. Twenty one years of age, yeah. So obviously, you know, two years later, you end up going to corridors court. Um, interesting because obviously the pathologist was in front uh, at the beginning to explain what happened and. You know, we we knew the story with with the prisoner concerned. He was getting transferred out. He was a bit of a bit of a bit of a boy, let's say, and they wanted rid of him. So he was going up to Norwich. He phoned his mum up and said, "Look, they're going to transfer me. I don't want to go. I'm going to pretend to hang myself, and then when they catch me, I'll be put on in that document, and they won't transfer me." And he's also said this to his um, his girlfriend as well. <clears throat> so we believe what happened is when I've gone on to deal, or when. I've gone onto the wing first to deal with a guy who cut the top of his ear off and I'm talking to him. He's then heard all the other stuff come on because he's hearing radios and voices and whatever else. Now he said to the guys in the cell next to him, I'm going to pretend to hang myself, tell the screw, when he comes to my cell, I'll be trying to hang. That way he'll open this document and I I won't be going, you know, I'll be, I'll be taken off to transfer. Unbeknown to him, we haven't come to see him. We've come to see the guy who's cut his ear off. So he's thinking, ah, oh, better get myself obviously in position. 
hooked himself up and as the pathologist explained it, he'd got the knot in exactly the right place that when he'd let his body weight go, it, it gone. blanked him out. Yeah, he was within seconds, two, three seconds, he's unconscious. Wow. And that, that is actually what happened to him, yeah. Accidental suicide. Absolute accident, oh. yeah. yeah. Oh, and then obviously the guys in the cell next door, they were then, we looked at, they actually, I think the police interviewed him on the proviso of possibly having them done for manslaughter because obviously they knew what was going on and they obviously hadn't said anything. So, but I don't think that ever. Next one is two prisoners found in a single cell. Is that honeymoon night? Yeah, well, honeymoon this was embarrassing, night. this was, because I've, I've come in on nights. <laughs> it was a Friday night and um, one of the night orderlies from the day had sort of, shut the doors I walked into the office and I'm thinking oh what, what have I done you know that door gets shut when there's a bollocking coming he goes you ain't gonna believe this one mate he says take a seat I goes what's happened he said well they were unlocking this morning on house block one they opened a single cell and two prisoners have come out <laughs> I'm like you what two prisoners have come out of this cell. Now, the procedure is on nights. When you go on nights and you get allocated a wing, the first thing you do is you check your prisoners. You count how many prisoners you have. You check yourself arms and you document it all. Clearly, the OSG had not done his night count. But it was worse than that. The prisoner who was not meant to be in that cell was a young offender. So you had a young offender and an adult in the same cell, which you can't do. You cannot have an adult and a young offender. So up until it's like 21, your class is a young offender. You can't share with an adult prisoner. Now, apparently he'd gone into this cell because he knew the guy in there had a mobile phone on him. And he wanted to obviously make a few phone calls. He'd obviously, I'm assuming, um, agreed to pay a, a fee, which would obviously would have been you know, phone cards or... yeah money whatever but he'd obviously gone into the cell the door's been banged up behind him and he's obviously happy as life because he's got access to his telephone all night long and then the yeah, day staff have come on and opened up and there's two of them in there okay. because obviously I'm classed as a night manager I'm responsible for the staff on the wing I've then had to interview staff to say like what happened did you count and a guy and I won't mention his name is adamant to this day that he counted that cell and he counted that wing. Are you sure that wasn't the spot of corruption? I don't think, I think I think it was simply a fact that the prisoner wanted the access to the phone. He had an agree, agreement with the guy who had the phone, but the prison off, or the, the prison OSG had not done the count. He should have done it. So not a romantic so not, night? No, not no. at all. No. Spooning. no, no. <laughs> so you did two years on the graveyard? <laughs> Two years I did. That's a long time. Absolutely. It, it did get to the stage where I'd had enough nights had been enough, you know. It, 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 I was getting to the stage where on my weeks off, I was up all night and sleeping during the day and I just couldn't get myself into a routine. So yeah, just after, just over two years it was, I said, look, I think it's time I, uh, I come off. In the meantime, um, I then got uh, the opportunity to go to Send, which is not far from where I lived at the time. Um, and so I decided when I came off nights, I would try and get that transfer to send, which was a female jail. Totally different again yes. to what I've been used to for the past maybe 15, 18 years. I've done a lot of talks at prisons and I'll, I'll tell you what, the talks I did at send were the most 
funny and riotous and the, <laughs> the women had read the um, women my books and they were about all my ex-girlfriends oh, really and they were asking me all questions about them and stuff and it, it, the laughter that's the most laughter I've ever, I've ever seen in a prison yeah but you went from high down nights straight to send nights yeah they um they agreed to transfer but then they said to me can you do us a favor our night orderly officer has decided he's had enough of doing nights, similar to me. Uh, would you mind taking over for a short period of time? And oh, I thought, God. well, I don't want to say no in case they say, well, okay, then well, we don't want you then. I had to sort of um, go, well, okay, yeah. And I ended up doing nights for about three, four months, I think it was. It was meant to be for a couple of weeks. And I ended up being on nights for a couple of, couple of months. <laughs> so who is Julie Hooper? Right, Julie Hooper um, was a prisoner who, she was on J-Wing. Um, J Wing was quite a new built uh, wing at Send. Julie had, from what I can remember being told, had a quite a horrific upbringing with regards to abuse. Mm. Yeah, I think she had gone through years and years and years of abuse. Obviously, Julie had a lot of nightmares and uh, recurring nightmares with her getting abused. And I was always told the first thing they said to me when I was on nights was, if you get a call to Julie Hooper cell, you get there as quick as you can, because this will not be um, a trial run. You know, if she's going to do something, Julie will do it when she wakes up, having had a really bad nightmare. Uh, so yeah, if you ever get a call to that cell, you get there as quick as you possibly can. You know, you just drop everything. Um, I had no issues with Julie at all. Uh, but unfortunately, it was around about a year later. Um, it happened. She'd um, woke up in the middle of the night, had a really horrendous nightmare. Um, obviously, started really, really cutting herself, and she she did actually die. Sorry, Sean's just uh, circled on the piece of paper there. Uh, Eunice Spry. Now we interviewed yeah. her, her son, well, her adoptive her son. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Spy, mm-hmm. and yeah, that just made my eyes pop. Then seeing her name on there, yeah. So Eunice was there, uh, um, most evil. What was she? She was, she was called the most evil uh, step mum, but step in the country. Not knowing who she was at the time, and I will be honest, I didn't. You just looked at her like an old lady who, mm. why are you in prison? Sort of thing, you know. She never came out of her cell. She literally would come out, get her food, go back. And her door would be open and she'd do a lot of sewing or not knitting and that sort of stuff. But you never heard her name. And obviously that's what it was. She kept the best low profile I've ever seen a prisoner try and keep. Yeah, because she only liked to abuse children yes. that she adopted. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Horrific story. Horrific. People want to watch what we do with Christopher Spry. Mm. Heartbreaking. Mm. Truly. So, um, and there was another death, death in custody. Yes, um, I after coming off nights, I went into the offender management unit. Um, so there, I've previously said you, you are involved, involved in interviewing prisoners, sitting down with them, working out targets they can do, that courses they can do to sort of try and get through their sentence and uh, rehabilitate. I don't like the word rehabilitation because there isn't any rehabilitation in the prison service. There's none, but you try to give them courses which will just I suppose give them something to do. You know. And um, so I would be responsible to write a report on them and then give them targets to aim for. And one prisoner I, I was given, um, I can't remember her name now, but she had been into she'd been in prison before. She'd done some sort of fraud, 
got released, but then they did what we call a confiscation order on her. So then she had to pay the money she'd stolen back. I think it was around about 15000 or spending over 12 months in jail. And she didn't have the money, so she ended up coming back into prison. And she got into her head that she was never, ever going to get out. Because as far as she was concerned, she didn't have £15,000. They'd release her, and then they'd say to her again, you need to pay this money back, or you'll go back to jail. And she thought this would be going to happen constantly. Anyway, she um, she was on, I believe she was on A-Wing. She wasn't a, a, a prisoner, which, again, the name would crop up very often, but she'd be known to sort of disappear. So, I mean, one day, I think they, they couldn't find her and she was hidden around the back of the gym, for instance. You know, what she was doing, I don't know. Not trying to escape, but I just think she just wanted to, she couldn't cope, basically. Anyway, this particular day, um, Saturday morning, we'd gone onto the wing and they couldn't see her when they were doing their night, their, their morning checks. And so they've called for staff to turn up, turned up at the cell. We've opened the door. She's under the bed. So we've all got down on our hands and knees, like, you know, what are you doing? Nothing. Didn't get a response or nothing. So then people start panicking, thinking she's dead. Pulled her out and she's, she's, a, she's, she's alive, but she's unconscious or she's, she's, plain that she's unconscious put it that way I mean I remember one of the nurses coming in I think she pinched her ear and she did get a reaction but she never sort of ow or woke up or opened her eyes or anything like this um, but the decision was made something's not right we've got to send her to the hospital and they ended up carting her off to um, the hospital in Guildford I believe mid-morning she started playing up so the old closet and chair I was talking about she kept wrapping it around her neck trying to tightened it around her neck and then the staff had phoned up and said look you know there's only two of us here she's playing up we need an extra member of staff they sent a third member of staff out on the escort because send as you probably know runs on very 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 limited staff numbers that extra member of staff going out to that hospital meant they had to close the main block down so A, B and C wings were closed down for the afternoon obviously the girls ain't happy Saturday afternoon behind your door anyway um, it got to about seven o'clock in the evening and they decided to bring her back to the jail and she'd been referred to psycho- um, like a psychiatrist and mental health services and whatever. But it wasn't deemed necessary for her to keep her in, in the jail, uh, sorry, in, in, the, in the hospital. So she was coming back to the prison. A decision was made to put her on a constant watch. So then that means she would go into a cell, which is next to reception and a member of staff would sit outside that door and constantly watch her. Okay. It was decided at some point from her coming from the hospital to getting back to the jail, bearing in mind me and her colleague had got the constant watch cell ready, got it all sorted for, everything was in there she would need. A decision was made that they were going to put her back on normal location. So she was going back into her old cell. So I think it was around about eight o'clock they did that review on her. And it was decided, yep, you're going back in your cell on A-Wing. They put her behind the door. At half past eight, the night staff have come on to do their checks. They're running around, uh, looking, doing accounts, open or open the flap to the cell, and she's laid face down on the bed. No response. So she's called for assistance. I was on B-Wing at the time, so I'm, I'm still on B-Wing. I'm waiting for my night member staff to come on and relieve me so I can go home. And then this message has come over the radio. I've run around to A-Wing and there was about three or four, if I can remember, staff stood outside the cell. I started going towards them. They went, call an ambulance. Please call an ambulance. And I don't know why I did it. 
I remember turning around as if to go to the office to find a telephone to phone the comms and say, we need an ambulance. And as I've turned around, I thought, hang on a minute, I've got a radio on me. What, what are you doing? I suppose it's panic or whatever else, you know. So straight away, I'm on my radio. Right, we need to get an ambulance here. It's, you know, code red or blue, whatever you call it. Urgent, blah, blah, blah. I've gone into the cell. And at this point, I didn't know she'd hung herself, but they'd actually cut her down. So she'd ligatured to the cell, uh, um, cell window, but she was sat on the bed. So she's literally choked herself. As they've cut the... Um, the ligature she's fallen face forward on the bed but stuff and I'm not going to knock stuff because nobody knows how they're going to react in that sort of situation they was like what do we do sort of thing and I remember just taking her putting her on the floor or saying to somebody grab her legs or something and we, we pulled her on the floor I remember she had a lot of vomit in her mouth a lot of vomit so we had to sort of scoop the vomit out and then me and a colleague then had to do CPR on her and this this went on for 15, 10, 15 minutes of uh, the ambulance. They were pretty quick, but at the, at the end of the day, an ambulance coming to the jail still got to go through the security procedures. You know, you can't just open the gates and let them in. And they had turned up and obviously the paramedics had uh, taken over. She went off to hospital and I think they pronounced her dead at just gone midnight. Mm. It was pretty horrific. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, I've totally unavoided that one. I think, um, I think what they also believe has happened is because they didn't put her on the constant watch, but certainly would have saved her life. They put her back on A-Wing because all the prisoners had been banged up. And you know what sends like, you know, whatever wing you're on, you, you can sort of shout across to each other. We believe she's been located back in the cell. Then the prisoners have started shouting at her. It's your fault. We've all been banged up today. You wait for tomorrow. You're going to get it. And she couldn't cope with it. So sad. Such a waste. What happens in the offender management unit? So yeah, as I said, uh, Sean, offender management is every year or when a prisoner's been sentenced, usually over 12 months, they will do an OASIS report. Um, and that is basically you will sit down and interview them and you'll talk about like, like we're doing now, you know, from their upbringing to where their crime started, any substance abuses they might have had, uh, alcohol abuses, relationship issues and you'll you'll talk all the way through it you know you'll, you'll ask them about jobs they've done and at the end of the interview i will go away and i will write, write like write a report but there's a lot of drop down boxes on the system and all that you know and it scores them like the potential for violence on release and the potential for violence whilst they're in jail on staff and all this sort of stuff it's, it's quite complicated and it does take a long time to sort of get your head around it but at the end of the the um the report, as I said, I'll write uh, a section on on maybe courses they might be able to do, like anger management, for instance, or substance misuse courses. And you'll say to them, right, your target over the next 12 months is to do a substance misuse course. And it all helps for when they come for, uh, for parole. So when they can sit in front of the parole board, um, the parole board will obviously ask them, what have you done? progressively whilst you've been in jail what was well what have you done to drop your risk for release and they will say right i'll be i've done anger management courses or i've done um drug and alcohol courses because my issue on you know um in in um doing crime is is alcohol and drugs you know and because i've now taken it out of my life that makes me a better person, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's a complicated system, but that's what you do. But then you have to review them every year as well. So once the Oasis is done, they'll have a review done every year. 
and that again will monitor their progression. But like I said, when it comes to rehabilitation, there's not any rehabilitation, I'm afraid. No. A lot of it is just it's tick boxes, you know. So what is the sandwich incident <laughs> in EF Wing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Send, you've got your main block, you've got ABC wing, which we called the main block. You would have D wing, which was a very, very small unit for um, people on substance misuse uh, courses. Like, um, I can't remember really it now. Carrots, carrots course or something. Um, you had J wing, which is where like Eunice Prize would be. Um, any sort of female sex offenders, because believe it or not, you get female sex offenders in prison. They would be located on J wing. And then you'd have E and F wing. And they were like, open they were wooden built uh units they didn't have cell doors they had just normal wooden doors and the prisoners on there would be allowed to be out until i think it was 10 o'clock at night um and then they'd be in their own rooms or trusted to go in their own rooms and and um then six o'clock in the morning they could come out again rather than being on the main blocks where you'd obviously have to have an officer unlock your door but a lot of the, the the women there would go out to work. So they'd get their rottles and they'd be working in local uh, companies around here. Um, charity shops, for instance, or they might work in um, nature reserves. And there's a few parks around, I think, Woking and Guildford and that, where they would work. But what would happen is on an evening, the kitchen staff would come over with a big tray of sandwiches and then obviously the sandwiches were allocated to a particular prison. In the morning, they'd come down to the office, go in the fridge, pick their sandwich up and that would be obviously what they've got for the day. So I've, um, I'm have i sort on the wing early in the morning and prisoners come down and she's like, oh, my sandwich isn't in there. I said, what do you mean it's not in there? She said, my sandwich is gone. And obviously, the sandwich is in a fridge and the fridge isn't lockable and anybody's got access to it so anybody could have took it it could have been a member of staff it could be another prisoner but her sandwich isn't there so as i'm talking to her this po walks in into the office and she's obviously overheard the conversation i says well i'll tell you what if it helps do you want to take a microwave meal with you hang on a minute what's what's going on so the prisoners then said to the po well i had a sandwich and it's not in the fridge so the prison, I can't believe this happened. The prison officer then gets on the telephone, phones the control room, asks the control room to get the duty governor to give her a ring on E-Wing's office. The duty governor's phoned up and as she's picked up the phone, she went, Governor, I have a sandwich situation on E-Wing. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you just couldn't make it up. No. You couldn't make it up. You know, like I said, she went away with a microwave meal, quite happy, because the microwave meal is probably 20 times better than a sandwich anyway, but like I was trying to say to her before this, P.O. came in, what do you mean give her a microwave meal? She has a sandwich, not, a, you know, she walked away with a microwave meal. <laughs> the sandwich incident the, was resolved. Yeah, so that was, we <laughs> then, obviously the staff in the know, which was basically the whole jail, class it as a sandwich situation. Yeah. So, Sue, you've written five pages of notes. We've got through two and a quarter, page, three quarters pages. We're about to end at send. We've got another podcast guest coming soon. <laughs> so, what, what we might have to do is split this one into two no parts. No problem. And I'm, I'm gagging for a fag. Yeah. Just, just, <laughs> just, you just want to tell the viewers then, real quick, um, what ended you at send and, and that first. I left send um, in 2013. It was. July 2013, I left on um, voluntary redundancy. 
the prison service had decided that a lot of us were too expensive uh, with our pensions and our wages, that they would get rid of us, bring in new stuff and a lower wage, obviously not so good pension conditions. And um, it was opened up to basically anybody who'd been in the service over a year. If you'd done sort of 40, 15 years plus, you had a very good chance of getting it. Although I do know a lot of guys in like a lot of the big London jails applied and they have shortages of staff anyway and they can't afford to lose anybody. They got knocked back. But yeah, I put, I put in for it at first, just wondering what I'd get, if I'm honest with you. Um, and then when the figure came back, it was sort of too good to refuse, if you know what I mean. But on top of that, with the new terms and conditions and all that coming in, I wouldn't, any, any prospects of promotion then would have totally gone for me. My leave was in days where, you know, everybody else would be coming in on hours leave. I was getting probably about an extra seven or eight days a year on top of everybody else. I didn't have to do a fitness test. If I'd done the new terms and conditions, I'd have to do a fitness test. My thoughts about that was, yeah, that's fine. I can pass it now. But when I'm 55, Am I going to pass it? If you don't pass it, you could end up losing your job. Um, transferring, as you know, I like to transfer a lot. I get bored quite easily. <laughs> Why not? Um, yeah. I'd have no prospects to transfer. So I decided, you know what, probably best to uh, say goodbye. And uh, I got awarded the scheme and I decided to take it. And he does rejoin the service and there are many more stories to come. <laughs> Three pages. <laughs> so please let us know in the comments what you thought of this. Thank you to Stu for spending so much Thank time you, with us. Thank you, Stu, is there You're any welcome. way the viewers uh, can reach you or follow you on socials or anything like that? I don't have anything in place, Sean. You've got nothing, but you've got a book in the pipeline. I do, hopefully, yes. Yes. And do you think, um, when do you think you can get that book completed? Uh, well... I might need a little bit of help, so if you can advise. <laughs> Speak to the right person. Well, you've, got a def- you've definitely got a good structure for it here. Oh, God. And okay. a huge thank you to our sponsor, Coro, <laughs> who has these yummy protein bars. Link is in the description to get your discount code. And, mm, I'm, I'm so addicted to them. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, the plug. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Let us know in the comments what you thought. Cheers. Take care. Thank you. <laughs>John G. Sutton. So this book includes Drugs, Riot, Shanks, Dirty Protests, Violent Freemason Guards, Self-Mutilation and Suicides. Welcome to the brutal truth about life as a prison officer. So with a career spanning 10 years inside of the walls of Britain's most infamous prisons, Manchester Strageways and London's Wormwood Scrubs, John Sutton has experienced it all. Attacked by the Soho vampire and insane killer, assaulted by the Cambridge rapist, threatened by the IRA, beaten, persecuted and prosecuted by Freemason officers. John Sutton survived to reveal the hard-hitting truth in his jaw-dropping memoir. 
from the get-go he just takes you right inside into a conflict and you just cannot put the book down all the way through if you've ever wondered what a career in the prison service is really like then this searingly honest account will take you onto the landings housing Britain's most dangerous prisoners accompany John as he carries the keys that lock up murderers rapists gangsters paedophiles terrorists addicts and the mentally ill as well as the ever-present threat from the inmates, John had to endure a conspiracy of violence from his own colleagues who were Freemasons. Nothing can be more dangerous in prison than the staff not having your back. Horrifying, harrowing and humorous, John's book will take you on an unforgettable journey into a netherworld of drugs, violence and hostile Freemasons. It's even got the Masonic compass symbol on the cover. So check it out, available worldwide. John Sutton's book, HMP Manchester Prison Officer. It's an e-book, paperback and audiobook.